Hello, and welcome to Digital Noise. I'm your host, Chris, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Brian. How you doing, Brian? Uh, dude, uh, I'm not Brian. What? Who who the hell are you? Hey, uh, I'm Sam. I work here now, so... Wait, wait, what? Yeah, I get used to it. Okay, wait a minute. You're not Brian from a parallel universe, are you? Because we dealt with that once before. No, I... I'm not. I'm not Brian from another universe. And uh, are you sure? Maybe, maybe I should go. No, no, it's okay. No, I mean, don't, don't worry. It's all right. I mean, I didn't really yeah. mean Brian from parallel universe. Okay. Of course. No, uh, have a beer. Okay, I'll stay. <laughs> Digital Noise, entering a new era as we introduce some new co-hosts into the lineup, the first of which will be Sam Idson. Hello, hey. Sam. Hey, how's it going? You might Glad re- to be here, man. You might remember Sam from such previous podcasts as the, the original gentleman where we talked about his the movie he stars in. Uh, I want to say Zero Theorem because I just did this, but it's That's Zero it. Charisma. Zero Theorem. <laughs> You're like going, man, I wish I had worked with Terry yeah. Gilliam. <laughs> One day. And then you One were on day. a commentary too, weren't you? Uh, was I? I want to. F- I feel like you were. Maybe you weren't. Maybe I was there in spirit. That could have been it. Yeah, maybe I'm it was always here. Parallel always universe, watching. Sam. <laughs> mm. Oh, you're the you're the uh, the hider in the in the ceiling that's watching me masturbate. Yeah, that's me. <laughs> you, Whenever you hear a creak and you think something in the house is just it's just the plumbing, that's not the plumbing. It's Sam. I'll be watching, waiting. I'll always be watching. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've got a lot of titles to uh, go through today. And uh, in addition to that, let me start off by saying we really appreciate all you guys who have decided to become a subscriber to the site. Can't tell you how much that helps to keep the lights on here. We've got uh, The Breakfast Pub, which is a weekly news show with Brian and I that does all the news for one-tier subscribers. For the next tier up, we have the new the new episodes of The Original Gentleman, now guaranteed bi-weekly with any number of uh, reoccurring faces that you might remember from the old days. Uh, as well, it really helps if you're going to buy anything from Amazon. Please click on one of our Amazon links, like you can see here on the Digital Noise page, where we have images of all the titles we'll be talking about this week, along with time codes. Uh, anything you buy at Amazon starting from those links, whether it's that movie or anything else, as long as you start from those links, we get a kickback from Amazon, and that stuff really adds up. Can't tell you how much we appreciate it. Also, there is a One of Us Reddit page now, apparently, and anything that you really love that we do, if you can post in there, that really helps, too, because Reddit just gets an almost obscene amount of hits. I would... I'm not sure how they make money, though, on Reddit. Somebody obviously has this huge amount of like data going yeah. on there but like like is some millionaire who's just hmm. like has nothing better to do just paying for this i guess i don't know ad space <laughs> i don't know do they I, have ads? i don't feel like i see ads on there but i'm not a real i'm not a regular Redditor. yeah I, I used to do it a lot more but i, I don't rem- yeah i don't know that's a good question I'm sure, i mean i don't think it's 
Yeah, yeah, you must be, I mean, there must be somebody fronting all that. There's always somebody who gives me shit because I'll post something on Facebook and they're like, I saw this on Reddit two months oh, ago. Oh, this was on Reddit at least two months ago. <laughs> exactly. So over it. You're like, okay, sorry. Well, right. this is a different crowd. This is for people who don't have the time to investigate everything going on right. on Reddit. So, anyway, uh, you know what? It's time to find out what you, the audience, wants to know from us We're as we open up... The You've got mail. That's right, the letterbox. Thank you, Torgo. And Torgo is the little guy who hides in our mailbox in Kansas. Ooh. The letters. <laughs> and also, he was in Manos, Hands of Fate. Oh, I love Torgo. <laughs> He's got the arm. That's the one. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, first up, we have a question from Michael Senegin, who said, Hey, Mike, how you doing? And in addition to their upcoming Beauty and the Beast and Jungle Book remakes, it was recently announced that Disney has gone into production of a new Pete's Dragon. Uh, <laughs> uh, given that this trend will likely not end anytime soon, what Disney animated films, if any, do you think would make for a good live-action retelling? I feel their version of Sword in the Stone and The Hunchback of Notre Dame have a lot of potential. What do you think about this one? I know, I know you're a big Disney fan. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, this question is perfect for me because I, I sigh the same way you do when I hear about all these remakes, yeah. live-action remakes. I mean, I, I uh, I'm all for uh, like a new reiteration of something if it's inspired. Yeah, there's but a, these just don't feel inspired. It feels like they're just picking out, you know, from a hat and whatever uh, comes up, they'll do. I mean, I, I didn't uh, see Maleficent, but to me, like that's like a good idea, actually, like revisiting villains. But I heard that was kind of a turkey. So I, I liked it for what it was oh. worth. A lot of people hated it. I, my girlfriend loves it. Um, well, but there you go. I enjoyed it for what it was worth. Well, in terms of like what's coming out, I guess you got you know the Jungle Book with John Favreau. I think yeah. the Jungle Book uh, is always gonna be like a difficult one to adapt because you have like animals and you have lots of live action stuff. But I trust him to do that. Um, and then Peach Dragon's coming out, which is already live action anyways. So yeah, it's, I, it's not much of a stretch. I, I think it's just because they realize that no one <laughs> under the age of thirty even knows what Peach Dragon is anymore. <laughs> right. So it might as well be new. Right. <laughs> I, I agree with the the reader who, on Sword in the Stone. I think that would be actually an, an excellent live action remake, which is closely based on. Uh, I think it's the only Arthurian adaptation really closely based on the Once and Future King, that the T. White. Right. Novel, which is maybe the best of the Arthurian like versions. Yeah, uh, and I would certainly, if nothing else, like to see a live action version of that book mm-hmm. taken a little more seriously, perhaps. <laughs> right. Um, I mean, Disney live action remakes haven't always been successful in the past. I mean, the Jungle Book in the '90s was okay, and the yeah. Wonder One Dalmatians and with Glenn Close was okay. Didn't they even make a sequel to that? They did. What was it, was it called? 102 102, Dalmatians? yeah. It's like, <laughs> wow, real clever, guys. Yeah. Mm. But, uh, yeah, I think Sword of the Stone would be a good one. As long as, you know, you. the key here in what, like, Disney has been doing, sort of, is finding the right director, the right vision. So I think as long as you find that, you could be surprised. Who knows? Maybe, yeah. yeah. Don't, don't write it off out of hand, right. basically. Uh, I would very much like to see them go back and take 
a serious live action adaptation of uh, the Black Cauldron, as well as just that book series that oh, it's yeah. from, that Lloyd Alexander Chronicles of Pride and they were great. And to my knowledge, that Disney cartoon is the only version, like filmed version of any of those that exists. Uh, if there if there is another one out there you know about, please tell me because I loved those books when I was a kid. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and. Uh, Oh, God, what was the other one I was thinking of, too? Uh, oh, you know, in terms of, like, remaking a live-action, though, one. Man, The Watcher in the Woods. I'd l- you remember that one? I don't know that one. Oh, yeah. It was <laughs> one of those when they were experimenting with horror. Oh, okay. In, like, the like early 80s, and they had, like, Betty Davis for a couple oh. of movies. And they did, like, Something Wicked This Way Comes as well. So it was already a live-action? Yeah. Okay. I'm yeah. just saying, like, an updated version Definitely, of that. Definitely, yeah. Yeah. All right, next question from Brian Kersey, who says, what would you like to see as the next horror trend after Shaky Cam has died down? Oh, man. (laughs) Uh. I mean, I know that for me, I would like to see the return of, like, somebody actually lives and wins at the end. Because it seems like you can't watch a horror movie these days without pretty much everybody dies and the bad guy wins. And I'm kind of, it's just gotten to where that's not scary anymore. It just kind of, in fact, it has taken away from my interest that you just know going into it nobody's going to make it so who the fuck cares right i I would like to see it go back to okay there's at least a last girl (laughs) right right yeah you want someone to root for and if you just know they're gonna die in the end what's i mean it sort of does de-escalate the whole thing and uh when they say shaky cam, does that just mean like found footage? Yeah, the found footage. Okay, stuff, yeah. Which sometimes they do that without even explaining. They, they've been so lazy about it lately. They'll do a found footage movie and never even bother explaining. Like one of our selections today. Yes, well, indeed. <laughs> You're like, wait, how is there a camera here? Who is shooting the film? <laughs> I'm. Uh, I'm. I mean, I'm just like. There's just so. I mean, this is cliche and probably oversaid, but. Just CGI blood, CGI yeah. everything is just go back to practical effects, man. Like, it, and then there's something today we'll talk about that actually has some pretty cool practical effects. But I mean, yeah, really, like it's just lazy to me. Yeah, and I hope it comes back. I hope more people, and I th- actually think there's more and more people who are doing that. Like. Even just in mainstream Hollywood, too, like J.J. Abrams and stuff like that. So, I think Well, I mean, you're good. seeing the return of practical, and you're seeing the smart use of CG, where it's practical. Right. You can mix it. That they're, yeah, that they're tinging with CG. But for God's sakes, there is no reason to sacrifice blood squibs. Nah. Ever. Yeah. No. Ever. They look so beautiful. <laughs> yeah, they look great, and no CG blood has ever looked good. Right. Um, oh, yeah. I think like the great exa- the best example I can think of right now of really good mix of practical and CG is on The Walking Dead. They do an amazing job mm-hmm. of making it look flawless. Right, uh, like a tarot man. Y- yep. Uh, next up is Leroy Augustus Mac the Third, who says, "With all the comic book team ups, what are some other movie characters outside of comics you'd like to see team up?" He says, "John Wick and the Equalizer." I feel like he's only asking me this question to hear me say the answer that I always say with similar <laughs> things like this, which is that Buckaroo Banzai and uh, the uh, lead guy from Big Trouble in Little China. <laughs> What's it called? Why can't I remember his name? Jack. Jack Burton. Burton. There you go. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, what's the what's the team up they're doing they, that was talked about? I mean, it was a comic, but it was like Men in Black and... Oh, 20, 21, 21, 21 Jump Street. That would yeah. be pretty good, actually. I, I really hope that actually happens. That would be kind of cool. Yeah, the creators have said they want to do it, 
and the studio owns both, so there's no reason, there's no legal reason right. they couldn't do it. But there's no formal movement on the project as of yet. I think uh, I'll pick another John Car. I'll, I want to see like the thing mm-hmm. versus like I don't know. Robocop or Snake something. Bliskin. <laughs> yeah. Or, oh, yeah, another John Carpenter. Yeah. yeah. And the thing Mixoza. stops for a minute and goes, hey, man, have we met before? <laughs> yeah. Well, I want to see the thing. I mean, I love the Arctic setting, but yeah. somewhere else, if they do it, you know, even like the desert, I don't know, mm-hmm. another. Or in the middle of the, or, the jungle. Oh, the thing versus Mad Max. Oh, God, uh, or cool. Predator. Yeah. That'd be great. <laughs> that would definitely be cool. Because you can start it. off with the thing in the jungle. Yeah. You know. Uh, like a new thing lands and starts coming out, and then hey, this is already predators hunting ground, buddy. Right. <laughs> and then there's just marines and from you, aliens. What, of course. The, oh, what's up? Wayland Utani's marines, just like, hey, what's up, guys? We're here to get the gold from. I and don't know. you would have to have the humans end up teaming up with the predators against right. the thing. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm picturing a predator head doing that, like thing split open and a bunch of tentacles that yeah. look like its dreads that would be amazing. flailing around. All right, well, we're going to close the letterbox now. Thank you guys for all your questions, as always. We really appreciate it. And uh, get ready your questions for next week, which will the show will be Richard and our next new person, Michelle Williams, who some of you guys might remember back from the Spill days. Uh, she appeared a few times on there, and she is actually one of the original members of The Real Deal back in the day. So she'll be joining the cast of Digital Noise as well. But not to stand on ceremony, it is time for us to dive into the reviews and we're going to start off with the terry gilliam film that even terry gilliam fans didn't realize was out already (laughs) zero theorem (laughs) uh it really did i mean it would barely hit theaters yeah it came out on blu-ray so unannounced they didn't send me a notice about it I saw on Blu-ray.com that it was out. I was like, what the fuck? So contacted the company. Guys, did you contact any press about reviewing <laughs> this? It's like, yeah, not really. It's like, any chance you have a copy? He's like, yeah, yeah. sure, I'll send you one. Okay. From the director of Thailand. And, well, yeah, you don't want to put that on. <laughs> I know, it's like, uh, and th- thankfully, doing. this is more in the line of Brazil than it is of Thailand. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, in fact, this is like... One of the more enjoyable Gilliam films I've seen uh, of the, the past several, so I'm kind of baffled why it was so buried. Well, if if you look at Gilliam in general, like he's never been like a you know big blockbuster type guy. He no. tried to do that sort of with like Brothers Grimm, but I think uh, in a way it's kind of um, it's kind of like return to form in any way that Gilliam's movie is not, you know, like nobody knows about it. Cause those, his, most of his movies are usually found like, I mean, Brazil, I, I don't know. I was like a kid when it came out, but I'm pretty sure it wasn't like a huge hit at the time, but it was much talked a, about, but I don't think it was considered right. to be a, a financial success. And now you could put it, you could put like, I don't know, you could market it that way. It's like from the director of Brazil or, you know, yeah, because Monty the, Python. And through. over time that became as important as it is. Absolutely. Uh, this film features uh, Christoph Waltz, 
who, God, it's, it's a shame Brian's not here for this one because he's so proud of the fact that he figured out how to do a Christoph Waltz impression. Oh, has he done a Christoph Waltz? Uh, well, of course, you know, he might have his own Christoph Waltz, but I would say mine is just as good. That That is pretty good. Yeah, I'm working on it. Uh, I, on the other hand, cannot do a Christoph Waltz. Me and Brian should have a Christoph Waltz. A Waltz-off? A Waltz-off. <laughs> I would find that very enticing. <laughs> Uh, he plays uh, Quohen. I'm probably saying this wrong. Quohen Leth, who is this... It's it's hard to understand, really. He's a programmer in the same way the hackers in the movie Hackers are programmers. Right. Like, he plays with a video game co- console, Definitely. trying to insert blocks of lines of code into other lines of code that are apparently some sort of like solving equations for this no. big corporation run by the the dapper Matt Damon who we see here <laughs> and there. Uh and it, this is very like bizarro futuristic, you know, but with old-fashioned stuff mixed in type of look to it, very Terry Gilliam. Yeah. <laughs> uh and he is not a happy man. He's a weird dude. He always talks about himself in the third person and in the in Queen's English, we do this type of thing. <laughs> uh, and he's got like a you know uh oh what's her name um uh what is her name who plays the psychiatrist uh Tilda Swetton is like a Dr. Shrinkrom who's like a software therapist who comes in basically telling him he's crazy all the time and he just wants to not have to go into work because he is you know doesn't like people, doesn't like having to leave his little house, which is a converted church, because presumably in this future, nobody believes in God at all anymore. At one point, they refer to it being a church as useless. Right. So nobody goes to church anymore. Not that that has anything to do with anything in this particular film. But uh, he ends up getting agreed to work from home, but he has to work on this huge supercomputer called the Neural Net Mansieve, uh, which has... And he has to order all the data, basically all the stuff from all these other things people have worked on, to solve what's called the Zero Theorem. And we never really know what that is, per se. Something to do with a black hole, I think. Right. I'm not really sure. Left up in the air, yeah. But he ends up like realizing there's a reason why nobody lasts long working on this. It's It's next to impossible. And things get weirder when a call girl, <laughs> played by the gorgeous uh, Melanie Thierry, uh, keeps starts showing up and then having virtual sex with him through the computer. There's a lot of really weird stuff going on in this movie that maybe not everything adds up completely clearly, but it certainly is a pleasure watching it all unfold. Anyway, I thought anyway. Yeah, it's like the it's his movies are all often about like the experience. It doesn't all have to like you know mesh together perfectly, but he gets the the mood correctly all the time. And I think this movie, you would you could say it, it doesn't always like add up to its sums, but if you're if you're interested in uh, a movie that makes you think and also has like gorgeous set design and as usual like interesting thoughts on the way human processes, I think it's a great movie for that. I don't think it's perfect. No, by no. any means. I mean, I think that like for instance, Brazil actually does all come together. Right. It's, it's a little confusing. But it does all fit. Right. This I, I feels like a very unfinished in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. um, and it also is like a smaller movie than a lot of his others. I mean, he did it for like thirteen million, and which is pretty cheap considering how epic sized a lot of his right. films are. I mean, even compare that with the imagination Imaginarium of Doctor Parnassus, which is like 
like has huge ambition. Yeah. Uh, this is just as colorful and wild looking as any of his films, but just with less sets, basically. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. I think it's, there's a lot of stuff to think about here. I just wish, I just wish it had been a bit more polished. Yeah. I think he, Terry Gilliam goes off on these beautiful, like sort of psyche rants in his movies. I think the best parts of his movies is when he comes back and really solidifies it all. And I don't think he, I, th- I think he sort of just left it up in the air and I don't think it ever solidified and made it into a uh, perfect little uh, picture. Yeah, I'm not sure I even completely understand what happened. Yeah, yeah, there, I mean, you, when you were reading the plot, I was like, sure, yeah, I remember. Like, I watched this like a year ago and I was like, don't remember that. No. <laughs> so it's a very kind of a forgettable, like, I remember the mood of it all, but I forget, like, yeah. Like after a year, I've forgotten like what everything happened. You know? I mean, I think it comes down to this is a film that really hardcore Terry Gilliam fans are going to be glad they spent the time to watch. Absolutely. But yeah. this is not a film to introduce someone to Terry no. Gilliam. No. I wonder what that would be. Um, Probably 12 Monkeys, I'd yeah. say, would be a great starting point. Or Fear and Loathing for someone maybe a little more eccentric. Or uh, Yeah, true. <laughs> Which is one of my favorites. That's the first one I saw, and I... I mean, that blew And me the away. Fisher King is probably his most accessible. Yeah. Everything. Uh, but this comes with a, about an 18-minute behind-the-scenes, basically a pretty straightforward EPK, uh, about seven-minute piece on the visual effects, uh, 30 minutes on costumes, which admittedly, they are some crazy-ass outfits in this movie. My favorite being, no matter when you see Matt Damon, even if he's just you just saw him a minute ago, somehow his outfit has changed <laughs> to perfectly match the surroundings and the wallpaper right. in the room, and it's, it's it. kind of cool. There's also a look at the sets for about 18 minutes and the original trailer. Um, yeah, I, I can say is like, give this one a try. Why not? You know, it's... If you've liked Terry Gilliam uh, films before, if you liked Brazil, I think this is one that like you, you're not you're not going to get quite the satisfaction you did out of Brazil, but I think it's still going to be well worth your time. All right, next up we have the Steven Spielberg film Munich that strangely only now is getting a Blu-ray release. Hmm. I didn't even realize. I, I thought, oh well, I guess they're re-releasing this. This must have come out initially because I think Blu-rays were even around when this first came out. But um, what 2006 or was it? let's see here 2005. Wow. So maybe they were, maybe they weren't. I'm not even sure. But either way, you would have thought that this film would have had a re-release at some point. Um, yeah. This is a straight port, more or less, of the last DVD special edition release of this with the, the bonus features included in there. Nothing else extra. But um, it's this is probably one of the lesser seen of Spielberg's films. Like I, I forgot it was a Spielberg movie. <laughs> it doesn't feel like a Spielberg no, movie. It feels like like a British thriller. Right. Well, he I mean, he's very good at being a chameleon. I yeah. mean, there are movies that if you look at like a movie his whole like stuff he's done in the aughts, like from well, was AI in the aughts? I don't remember. I but don't remember. like from if look at AI to Minority Report to Catch Me If You Can. Right. I mean to like a little small film like The Terminal he just, I don't know how he does it, but he's able to maneuver his techniques to any sort of story. And I think he does it kind of perfectly here. I, I love this movie. Um, I think this is an excellent film. I do think it's overlong. 
I do think mm. there's a lot of stuff that could have gotten cut here because it's yeah. really long. It's long, yeah. Uh, but, you know, that's what you do when you're making an, quote, important film this about a true Oscar story. Uh, this was based on Operation Wrath of God, uh, the Israeli government's, like, hidden spy retali- retaliation and a assass- series of assassinations against the PLO after they just stra- straight up massacred all of the Israeli athletes at the 1972 Summer Olympics. And it really is the story here of Eric Bana, who plays, you know, a guy who works for for um, the Mossad, but in a very sort of like office sort of sense, it seems like. Right. Like maybe he was actually a soldier at one point, but he uh, he's not the guy you send out on a secret mission. But for whatever reason, the powers that be, Jeffrey Rush playing his main contact, uh, decide that he's going to lead this group of people who are going to find all the people who were responsible for planning the massacre and assassinate each one of them and take no credit for it and not let it be traced back to Israel or anything just to do it to say, you know, you know, we did it. Don't fuck with us. And the world can't condemn them for committing assassinations. Right. Uh, Daniel Craig plays one of the, the group, uh, Siren Hines, who's always nice to see Omar Metwali, uh, Matthew Kasovitz, who is uh, the, who played the the guy who Amelie fell in love with? Oh uh, yeah, and uh, oh, what is it? He's in some TV show. Is he oh, like the... he's on Orphan Black. Oh, he is. Yeah, I've never seen that show. I, I, I want to. I, I think it's him who's in Orphan Black. I can't remember. Anyway, um, it's an excellent cast, and it is. I, I would be really curious to see almost scene for scene what actually happened. Do we know what do we know that actually happened, and what was complete conjecture? But this film never feels like Hollywood manip- manipulation of a story. It all feels very real. Well, it's it's shot very Hollywood, but then but the performances are very realistic and and as in most Steven Spielberg, they're just it just feels like real dialogue, like real conversations. And that's I mean, you need that for these kind of movies. I love these kind of movies that sort of take you into a real event but give you a uh not overly like dramatized version of it, but tell you the truth. And I think this movie is brutally honest yeah. about both sides, which I liked. Um, I, you know, this. I don't think I liked it quite as much as you. I do agree with that. I think I feel like sometimes the ultimate of like, oh, we're all bad. Don't you see? This is like a self-replicating thing. It's no, nothing's ever gonna get fixed if we keep killing each other. It's like, yeah, no duh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I well, realize, hey man, I don't think audiences know that. No, that's judging true. from American Sniper box up. Right. Uh, I. It, it hits the nail a little too firmly on the head for for my tastes, but I don't think I think you're right. There's not anything necessarily wrong with that. Um, and like I said, the the film goes on for a long time, and I would have liked to have seen more detail about who the other guys were because we really we know a lot about Eric Bana and what his motivations oh, are. Yeah, part of the team, but yeah. the, the rest of his team we know next to nothing about, and that would be fine if they were minor characters, but they have a huge amount of screen time. Right. I mean, at best we get the idea that uh, Daniel Craig is kind of the most heartless of them all, and uh, and Siren Hines is the one who, like, kind of he he. Doubt is an essential part of his being. There's an interesting bit where he's saying, I couldn't do this if I wasn't allowed to kvetch about it the whole time. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I, I miss Daniel Craig as like a character actor when you didn't know who he was. Right, pre-James Bond. And like, he just 
like Layer Cake. Oh yeah. Uh, this um, he's in this other Roger Mitchell movie where he plays like kind of really twisted characters, and I think he's just under underused. I mean, once he became Bond, it's just like yeah, that's who he is. You can't kind of forgot he was in Lara Croft Tomb Raider. Oh god, <laughs> Road 100%. to Perdition. Yeah, yeah, he's in Road to Perdition. He's like there's all this stuff you can go back and watch him, and he's. He blends in nicely. He was great in the girl in the dragon tattoo. Oh yeah, yeah? absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I and I think he's really good. I mean, that's the thing. Everybody is so good in this. I I think maybe there's there's a lot of the Jewish community that is not 100 percent pleased with the way Israel does business. To, no. to put it very like clearly, and you would think that would be obvious. Unfortunately, anti Semites tend to not understand the world is made of many different types of people mm. and that nobody likes to argue with themselves more than Jewish people. <laughs> uh, there, this film is not, I mean, there's even an introduction with Spielberg where he's like, this is not an attack on Israel. That's not what I'm trying to do here. I'm just trying to show the situation that everybody is kind of fucking up. Yeah. I mean, Spielberg, he can't help it. He has to like add, you know, he's got John Williams doing the score, man. When you have a score from John Williams, you have to add a layer of manipulation and something. Is he even allowed to work without John Williams? Isn't that so. a law or something? I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't want it any other way because that's what Spielberg does. I mean, but Haneke, uh, Michael Haneke actually had a great quote that he hates like stuff that Spielberg makes, like Schindler's List. And he'd probably say the same about this where... You know, it's it's taking a tragedy and and dramatizing it and making it into something that... like a thriller in a way, and I think it actually works better. I mean, I agree with the Mariana there, but I would also say that um, that's you know just the way Spielberg is, and he does it better than anyone else. So I, I really can never complain. That is very true. Uh, he is like he's kind of the Capra of our time. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's like it doesn't always work, but when it does. There's just no denying the yeah. effect it has. Don't be angry because you got the feels. Yeah, all the feels. <laughs> all the feels. Well, you know, it didn't give me all the feels is our mm. next title, which is Fear Clinic. Uh, oh, geez. You know, this should have been better than it is. There's a lot of stuff in here to actually like, I think. I think the concept is pretty damn cool. And you've got Robert England playing your main character as a psychiatrist. Uh, like that. Did I say the title? Fear Clinic. Fear Clinic. Uh, he's a psychiatrist that tries to cure phobias. People are extremely phobic about something by putting them in this sort of fear machine that makes them hallucinate and experience their fears for as if they were real. Mm. And somehow it's never really explained how that has made for a series of people made them stop being phobic <laughs> about stuff. But now it's like two, three years later, and this group of people who all were witnesses at a really horrific shooting that took place in this restaurant sometime before and we're all having nightmares couldn't sleep because of it are all having reoccurring issues they're like having hallucinations again like really severe hallucinations of this guy appearing and they're coming back to the clinic which at this point has largely fallen into disuse mm. uh to basically say, hey, Doc, what the fuck? <laughs> uh, and the Doc is kind of losing it himself. He, right before people start showing up, we see that basically one woman who he 
you know, the first woman who came back, he was trying to help. He put her back in the machine and she died in the machine and he has no idea why. And he's like, I thought I was like the leading guy in this field and now I don't feel like I don't know anything. Yeah. Uh, of course, it's not as simple as that. Things start to keep happening and eventually you realize that there's a very pissed off, nasty, Cthulhu-ish en- entity on the other side of reality who's intruding into our world in a gooey, icky... Black matter. Black matter sort of way. Black goo! Not the black goo! No. And I feel like this is almost a good movie. The effects are cool. There's like a whole thing where it basically takes on the appearance of Robert England, but if he was like had goo sticking out of him everywhere, <laughs> tendrils and tentacles. I mean, it it's like this movie begs the the question, what if Mari Mari Povich had a had a had it all right when he just like threw phobias at people's faces and made it <laughs> Are you, are you afraid of frogs? Well, we happen to have some frogs here. Yeah, throw them in the frog tank. Yeah. Um, I wonder, is Fiona Dorif, is she related? I don't think she's related to Brad Dorif. Oh, okay. At least it doesn't say so on a Wikipedia page, yeah. anyway. Um, yeah, when you have Robert England, you, you just think, uh, well, you know, he's gonna, he's either going to be like a crazed scientist role or he's going to end up being like, you know, something. He's going to have a change. And I think uh, that was the most successful part of the movie is just when they got to some like cool practical effects. And I think the director actually is like a former practical effects man for a lot of like what, Robert Green Hall. <clears throat> I think uh, yeah, I yeah. Saw, and I saw that, and, and that's like where where I thought the movie was most impressive. It's it's pretty like you're right. I mean, it has it could be a pretty good movie. It's just, but it just falls flat so many times. It's missing any explanation for why what is happening is happening. Right. There's all these giant leaps in logic to get from where the movie needs it's to just go. Fine, next. but it's like you gotta you gotta throw me something. You gotta throw me something else for me to like care enough. And I thought the ending was really stupid. <laughs> <laughs> it's always stupid. Yeah. That's, yeah. Um, I, I mean, but I I think uh, yeah, that's where it's most like effective and and i i just i'm so t- i'm so sick of jump scares that aren't even motive like i don't i i i get scared by jump scares yeah if you if you i mean t- depending t- on the scare yeah i mean if you do it right but these there's just there's one scene where a girl just like she's sitting on the couch and someone just you just hear like a bang and then it's like hey what's up I'm your boyfriend and it's like alright <laughs> uh, I, didn't, I didn't believe that yeah that's the other thing is none of the characters in here except Robert England are even mildly interesting no, and, some, and England yeah. God bless him is working his heart out <laughs> just trying to sell this as both the sympathetic and broken doctor and then later as the horrific nightmare monster creature uh and yeah, I mean, you're like, I want, I want you to get something else, Robert. You, nobody deserves it more than you. Something else, but he definitely kills it as the monster. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> yeah, he's playing like a real sad scientist role here, and it's it's almost sad to you as a viewer. It's like, oh, Robert, poor Robert, poor Robert. I know, I did feel actually bad for him, but yeah, I think ultimately it's a skip. Unfortunately. Um, like I said, there's some nice visual stuff, and quite possibly this director is one who will come along and do something better. This is a awkward first attempt. Yeah, kind of feels like an experiment. Uh, next up is a 2014 gothic ghost film called Alter, starring Olivia Williams as a woman named Meg Hamilton that has been hired to flip this gigantic gothic 
Victorian house uh, for some un, un, unseen owners, basically. She's through a company hired to flip this house. And, you know, it's what she does. And she's an artist, and she's good at it, and she loves her work. Her husband is Matthew Modine, who, as near as I can tell, does nothing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and she moves into this place with her reluctant children, and then, of course, they ghosty shit starts happening. Right. <laughs> Um, I don't want to go too long on this. This is, uh, it was originally, uh, premiered in, uh, on, uh, in England as the haunting of Radcliffe house, uh, and then was retitled for some reason, altar. <laughs> I mean, there's not an altar anywhere in this movie, so it doesn't really, I mean, at best they, at one point they, they find a, a secret room and there's this Rosicrucian mosaic on the floor. That's actually pretty cool. And, yeah, there's no. It's. I guess you could call it an altar if you wanted to, but I wouldn't really. Yeah, um, it's a metaphorical altar. And this isn't isn't a terrible ghost movie. I like for one thing, it's not doing the CG ghost. It's not doing the, you know, the people with lot caked on white makeup. It's li- literally using a really old technique of just superimposed imagery and sort of like it sort of like divide looking jagged at points. And I mean, it's couldn't be simpler, but somehow I found it more effective than the same old, same old we see in every single ghost movie lately. Um, they're genuinely creepy points, but ultimately this feels kind of like a made for TV ghost movie. I mean, maybe it was, it originally aired on channel five television. So I don't know if they filmed it as a movie and went, oops, nobody wants to see this in the theater. Let's put it on TV. But yeah, it's uh, uh, only for the very dedicated to the ghost films. Talk about your very dedicated. Let's talk about the dying of the light. <laughs> you've got to, go. you've got to be a dedicated Nick Cage fan to get through this one because the Nick Cage movie he doesn't want you to see. Dude, if even Nick Cage is like, don't watch this. It's a bad movie. I mean, how bad does your movie have to be mm. for Nicolas Cage to say, yeah, this is not one that I'm proud of? Well, I well he did do it to back up the director. Yes, which is the, the very important uh, and accomplished <laughs> Paul Schrader. Yeah, absolutely. The weirdest thing about this movie is is that it was never supposed to be a Paul Schrader film in the first place. He wrote the script. It was going to be a Nicholas Winding uh, Refn film. Oh. And everybody was all excited about it. And it was like, oh, this is going to be a big thing. And then... Everything fell apart. Uh, it was announced finally, eventually, because Reffin found the script, got the script for Drive. Harrison Ford was going to play the lead. Uh, when Reffin left, Ford left. Uh, then Schrader said, okay, I'll direct it myself, with Nicolas Cage coming in to replace Ford. Anton Yelchin joined the film. So you're like, okay, Cage can be good, especially when he's not allowed to go completely off the deep yeah. end. And this looked like a more serious thing. And Yelchin is great. But then apparently, well, I'll just say what Schrader posted on his Facebook page about it. He said, after the fact, he said, we lost the battle. Dying of the Light, a film I wrote and directed, was taken away from me, re-edited, scored, and mixed without my input. Um, the cinematographer wrote that apparently the, the his color-significant cinematography had been digitally altered, and he was denied the possibility to accomplish in post-production what is any cinematographer's duty, assuring that what audiences will see on cinema and television screens faithfully reflects the look intended by the director. So in other words, this is an example of some producer at the studio who thinks he knows better taking the film away from everyone who actually made it and just cutting it to his own pleasure and making what is generally considered to be a giant piece of shit. (laughs) 
Um, the story as such has Nicolas Cage as a you know old experienced CIA agent that we see early on had suffered through some pretty nasty torture. His ear is still all fucked up looking because of <laughs> that ear, and was barely saved from being killed. And the guy in question who like was in who had captured him was believed killed, but Nicolas Cage ain't believing it. Did you see his head? You saw a body, but did you see his head? <laughs> and believes he's out there somewhere. When in, when he finds out that there's a bunch of terrorists looking for these drugs that are specifically used for this rare blood disease, that in fact that, the terrorist in question, who he wants to find, that his father suffered from, and it is in fact congenital, uh, he's determined that this is the guy. And so he is, you know, with or without the help of the CIA, he is going to go and fucking find this guy and have a serious talk with him. Without, with the help of Anton Yelchin, yeah. I can't talk unless I sound like this. <laughs> or someone give me a cup of water, please. He does sound a little strained in this one. <laughs> I mean, uh, um, yeah, he... That's his thing, man. The cage even is like, no one is restraining him here Dude. either. There's like I'm like there's points where he just suddenly like like explodes with like nonsense. You're like, what is happening here? I mean, if you're a like a Nick Cage fan, this is a must see. <laughs> I mean, it's a it's not a good film, right? Uh, that is, we agree and then, on that. And we don't know why. Maybe maybe there's a director's cut that's great <laughs> or something around there. But uh, he's a this is Nick Cage in full form and and I love Nick Cage when you know those random spastic you know uh his his ear the whole time is like really you know, distracting it's just so very distracting <laughs> and I love it he's just getting a he's just getting a cup of coffee or in a diner scene and he's on the phone and I think he like touches his ear and like winces like he's trying to like show oh this ear still do you remember it's like, <laughs> remember dude, the ear you're like a high paid guy at the CIA you can't afford to get that fixed <laughs> yeah seriously or just hide it something yeah. <laughs> grow your hair a little long on the sides I yet Cage is in kind of insane here and he should be playing it straight and yeah. I'm like not sure what happened I can't help but wonder if the actual film even edited the way Schrader would have wanted it would still be right. terrible. We'll see. I, I feel like there's there's you can see the reasoning why they thought, okay, this is gonna be this is a cool story. Like the connection because he himself has found out he is dying from a brain related like issue and uh the terrorist is dying from a blood related issue and you can be like, okay, I can see that there's something you could work with right. here. But at the end I was like Wait, what? What it's was that movie so about? Messy. Yeah. <laughs> it's so it's pretty forgettable. Yeah. The story, at least. I mean, it looks slick. It looks like a Hollywood film, but yeah, it ultimately just is pretty forgettable and boring. Yeah, I cannot recommend it. Now, more of a mixed recommendation is VHS Viral, which is the third in the series of these American anthology films that are found footage shorts that they get. You know, big name directors in horror to come in and, up and, and do their own yeah. shorts or up and comers. And this one probably the, the one of the biggest names here is Nacho Vigalondo, who's a fantastic fest favorite. I guess he's only a big name to us. Nacho, <laughs> Nacho, the the official mascot of Fantastic Fest. Absolutely. Uh, and you know, 
I, I think that the second one is still the best of the series. I think the second one, all, practic- except for the wraparound story, every story in the second one is pretty damn yeah, great. Those wraparound stories, man. They, they suck in all three. They t- yeah. And this one is maybe the worst of them. It's like they're trying <laughs> to do something different, and it makes no sense. Is the, is the, the, the kid trying to find his girlfriend that's the wraparound? I mean, I didn't even know what they wanted to be the wraparound in a lot of this, because it just felt so convoluted. Like, like there's a rogue van yeah. that all the cops are chasing and worked. anyone that gets near it starts having bizarre experiences um. and it kidnaps his girlfriend and he's trying to chase it to get his girlfriend back and by the end I had no idea. I was idea. so confused. Yeah. I, was, I don't know even slightly what that's about but if you can forget about that and you wonder wait why is this so short because there was a fourth story that was so bad they just said oh we had to cut it for the um, it just didn't tonally fit in, which is true. <laughs> it's just Have you seen awful. it? I've... No, it's an extra on the disc. Oh, I didn't so uh, if you want to see it, it's on here. It's called Gorgeous Vortex, and yeah. it, there's like an almost no dialogue. It's like trying to be arty, and it's just bleh. It's almost impossible to get through. Um, but the the at least two of the three stories here in VHS Viral, I think, are genuinely <clears throat> pretty damn good. Um I, Nacho Vigalando probably has the best of the three, I think, with his story of a guy who uh, opens a door to a parallel universe and sees the parallel version of himself, and he's like, "Hey, man, let's let's trade sides. Let's go right. through the door and like just you know just for like an hour or so and see if there's any difference in each other's worlds." And oh boy, <laughs> yeah, I loved it. <laughs> there's a bit of a difference. I thought it's so creepy. Oh, it's I mean, really it's, it's really well produced. Like he sets up the. The sto- the technique, what what's going to happen really well, and he does a great job of cutting between. I think it's it's perfectly executed. Mm-hmm. It's su- like, yeah, super creepy. It's got kind of like a Cronenberg vibe mixed with like you know, demon cults, <laughs> yeah, like that. It, it that's funny. It, it it is an odd like if Cronenberg did a demon cult film. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I um, mean, the even I, the, well, just even like the 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 setup that. Uh, what do you call it? The parallel machine, whatever yeah. he made, looks like a, that from the fly. It sort of looks similar to those machines. And try, it'd be interesting if that was intentional by Vigalondo or not, who I'm sure has seen the fly. Yes. <laughs> um, the next one, and actually, like, whereas I think Vigalondo's is probably the best made, my favorite, because it was just fun, was Dante the Great, which is directed by, uh, written by Greg Bishop, who wrote Dance of the Dead, and, and uh, T.J. Simple, who wrote No Tell Motel. And uh, directed by, says Bishop, I'm not sure which Bishop that is offhand. Greg Bishop? Greg Bishop? Okay. Uh, Yes. And it's a faux documentary about this kid who was just a trailer park little redneck kid who suddenly became the greatest magician ever. And basically he has come across this cloak that belonged to a uh, Harry Houdini and turns out to actually be real magic and he can do almost anything with this thing (laughs) and it's not so much scary as it is just like just really fun (laughs) you know there's a whole there's a magician showdown at one point between him and his assistant because they're both like you know because you can just grab the cloak and you then you can use its power if you're even touching it and so there's like they're fighting for the cloak and then launching you know magical attacks at each other of anything they can think of and i was like i would kind of like to see a whole movie of that I uh, I don't agree. No? I think it's goofy and stupid. <laughs> I think it's so... I mean, I agree it's fun. I was definitely watchable. But 
I got a rant about these the VHS series in general. Nobody shoots it on VHS. Everyone's shooting on like high end cameras, (laughs) and I like and I the most the second one's the best because I think they really take that technique of like it has to be like like the, the camera angles everywhere it's shot has to sort of follow these rules and i think dante the great does they say in the beginning they're like he puts cameras everywhere he likes everyone it's like come on dudes i mean i get it it's goofy it doesn't matter that there's cameras definitely but at one point the camera starts following like like it's sort of born identity style so how is the camera Uh, what the fuck is going on well i mean it wasn't that if i'm not mistaken wasn't that wasn't he using his magic to make the cameras like move around like like in chronicle (laughs) yeah i I don't know let's get out that one was pure comedy, no question. Yeah. It was not horror. Much like the uh, the last episode of the original one, where the, the guys go into the haunted house assuming it's a fake uh, haunted yeah, house, yeah. and it's actually haunted, and they're like, oh, cool, check that yeah, out. absolutely. <laughs> Which is also something I would like to see made into a full-length movie. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Um, the third one here I thought was pretty bad. Uh, uh, it really feels amateurish. It's Bone Storm, made by the the team that made Resolution, which is a really good movie. Uh, this follows uh, these skateboarding kids who are making a skateboard video and trying to do dangerous stunts and everything. And they go to Tijuana for some reason, trying to find a place you know out in the middle of nowhere where they won't be disturbed. But unfortunately, there's a cult trying to raise their demon god to the earth, and uh, and the cult starts showing up and trying to kill them. Um, the only thing I can say about this, it was kind of funny to have the idea that these kids are... It doesn't even occur to them to be scared. They just start trying to bash in cultist heads with their skateboards. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, that's kind of funny, but... Yeah, I felt I felt the same way. I thought it was like... It felt amateurish, which is fine. I mean, like, it's, it's like, you know, I like the idea that these kids are, like, shooting skate videos and then some cult comes in. But I, thought, I don't think it was executed well enough. And no. I think... Uh, I think the kids were just okay, and I think the whole thing was just okay. It could have, like, it's a pretty good concept. I mean, I like anything where it's, like, Mexican, like, old, like, folk tales. And instead of using, like, you know, gangsters, they use, like, what if these, like, killings in Tijuana are, like, the some demon cult and i like that concept but yeah i don't think it was executed yeah, conceptually well yes but yeah the execution was just it it looked like i mean i guess it was supposed to but it really looked like the level of amateurish of an actual skate video right <laughs> you know in terms of everything about it even the gore effects were like Neh. yeah the gore effects were pretty yeah but if you rough. feel like you gotta know you can get this disc and watch the 16 and a half minute gorgeous gorgeous vortex which i don't really recommend there's commentary with the various directors on here uh, a featurette about bones featurettes about bone storm featurettes about dante the great nothing about nacho vigilando strangely mm. i don't know why uh various interviews uh and epks and honestly they put together a halfway decent little package for it it's just the VHS film should be getting better, not stepping backwards. And this felt yeah. like if you have to pull one of your films, maybe you should just wait to release this until you can get something else to replace it. Well, I mean, like like you said, like all these directors have made decent films. Some even like Nacho's made great films. Yeah. Uh, and I think they just need to concentrate on that and make sure that the directors have, ins- instead of forcing them to come up with a concept, maybe 
find people who are inspired enough to make a good concept. Right. And shoot one in VHS for fucking sake. For fuck's sake, yeah, right? Uh, if you call it VHS. With the, uh, the, the wraparound thing was done by the director of Dead Girl, which I uh, thought was actually yeah. a pretty good, very disturbing little film. Good movie, yeah. I'm surprised that the wraparound's as bad as it is, considering, but yeah. maybe there's just something inherent for the VHS films about the wraparound that's you like... You don't even need them. Yeah. I don't know. At this point, I'm like, just forget the, the conceit <laughs> and just make the fucking shorts, all right? right. Uh, next up, moving into television, we have Z Nation. All right, now... I have to apologize, first off, to everyone, because I'm going to recommend this, but it's not... Some people are going to watch this based on my recommendation, and they're going to write me and be very angry that I recommended this. I mean, I should know better, right? This is a television zombie drama created by The Asylum, the production company that, as far as I can tell, have only ever made one good movie, and that was Sharknado 2. And even that's not a good movie. It's just funny enough that it's worth your time. I can't stand the asylum. Like, really viciously, yeah. like, visceral, gut-churning... Ugh! Like, real hatred? Like, they're just schlockmeisters who don't even try. Ah, you gotta give them credit, though. They they were the ones who... I mean, there's lots of people who make those kind of movies. They made an empire out of it. Yeah, no, they did. <laughs> they, they, it's very you true. You gotta respect it. You may hate, the, hate them, but... Yeah, well, I hate the, I, I hate the films that they've put out. It seems right. that I was really surprised that Sharknado two because the first one is just dull, kind of dull. It's not that good. The second mm-hmm. one is actually genuinely funny. Mm. I was like, oh, wh- what happened? <laughs> and much to my surprise, Z Nation, which is not going for the Walking Dead vibe, it's going for the Asylum films presents the Walking Dead vibe. I mean, big, dumb, gory. Uh, uh, let me put it this way. At one point, there's a zomnado, like a tornado filled with zombies that's, that's awesome. just chucking zombies at people. This is the kind of TV show that Z Nation is. And God help me, as bad as the acting is, and oh boy, <laughs> is it awful. <laughs> and as bad as some of the effects are, although they do get better as it goes along, and as ridiculous as the script is. I mean, there are some... There's some actual good actors in here who uh, can... DJ Qualls? Who can, yeah, like DJ Qualls, who can do nothing with the material they're given because it is so bad <laughs> that they just don't even try. And mm-hmm. honestly, after watching the whole 13 episodes of this first season, that was the right decision. Because they're, like, to try and be serious of some of the... Oh, my God. They're, like... Some of the dialogue is, like, you. I had to pause it because I was laughing so hard at going, like... Somebody somewhere thought that was a badass thing for somebody to say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but I did, in the end, have a lot of fun with this. I have no fucking idea how they're going to make a second season. I mean, it ends with, uh, uh, like, basically everyone in the entire world seconds from death. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Yeah, I'm not going to say specifically uh, how, but... Well, it is like, the zombie apocalypse. Yeah, but it's like... like like one of those things. Like I'm not sure there is any way you could write people out of this outside of it was all a dream, which they very well might do because there's a second or they season on the change the location. I don't know. Yeah, I, or yeah, a whole different set of characters They're or not something. Smart enough to do that? Probably not. But the idea is yes, the zombocalypse happened. DJ Qualls uh, plays a a guy who calls himself Citizen Z. He works at the Northern Lights NSA outpost, the sole surviving employee out there, and basically he's the one who do, like is trying to help the surviving group that we're following back in the regular United States uh, who, who are trying to get across the country. He's trying to help them whenever he can with, you know, a satellite 
information. He also kind of functions as a DJ, even though, the, as far as he knows, there's almost no one listening to him. Um, and you've got this whole group of people that are find this guy who is had, was in, given a vaccine for the vi- for the zombie virus and survived. He's like the one guy who survived it. They don't know why, but they're like, we've got to get him to this lab in California. Unfortunately, they're in New York. <laughs> so the whole show is them traveling to California, trying to get him there. And as it goes along, it becomes clear that he actually has been affected by this thing. Like the zombies don't have any interest in him. They're just like, he can walk right in the middle of them. And they're like, whatever, dude. Uh, and then even more so later on, where it turns out he has some sort of like psychic type powers for some reason. Uh, why that would why that would happen in a zombie thing? I uh, huh? The asylum. There's other weird. So there's characters in here who are like having like dreams that may or may not be clairvoyant. They're mixing weird shit into the zombie thing, but. There's no denying that there's fun to be had. There's a sequence where they're in Philadelphia and they see somebody's loaded up the Liberty Bell onto the back of a truck. So they drive the truck and it, like something happens and makes it basically spin out of control and the bell goes flying and takes out like 20 zombies. Just splats! Nice. I was like, okay, that's kind of awesome. Liberty! <laughs> I gotta admit, that I was kind of cool. You got Tom Everett Scott is in here for a while. Uh, one of those actors who pops up here and there. Never really got a, a, the film career that it seemed like he was on the way to. You know, he starred in that Tom Hanks-directed film uh, about the musicians. I'm forgetting the name of it right now. That Thing You Do? That Thing You Do. And then Harold Perrineau, who's on every... By law, has to be on every television show at least once. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, who is briefly... Who's in the first episode, basically. Uh, and lots of reoccurring guests and what have you. I don't know. This is so silly, but I couldn't help myself... God help me, as dumb as it is, I kind of ended up lapping it up by the end of it. So give it a try, especially if you're one of those people, I hate The Walking Dead, all they do is talk. Yeah, that's not going to be a problem here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they do a lot more than talk. All right, moving on, we're going to talk about what is my pick of the week, Game of Thrones Season 4, because holy shit, this show just keeps getting better and better and better. Uh, and I think Game of Thrones season four is the highlight so far of what they've done. I mean, sure, the Red Wedding was cool, but this is watching all the shit that goes down as an after effect of the Red Wedding. Watching, my God, like everyone's like, oh, I hate Joffrey. You know, they're never going to get rid of him. Really? Purple <laughs> Wedding comes around. <laughs> yeah, the, the Redder Wedding or the yeah. Purple Wedding, they call yeah. it. Yeah. Um, there's so much cool shit that goes down in Game of Thrones season, season four. Uh, I don't know how they're ever going to top this for the next season. I mean, the thing is, um, all right, you're going to hear, I'm a book reader. I'm one of those guys. <laughs> we got a reader. <laughs> oh, we got a reader in here. So I'm like not as happy with the show as you are, but... I will say... Do, do you mean in comparison to the books, specifically? Yeah, the books are much better. <laughs> no, I just think it's... Uh, I think the show is great, and I think it has really great moments. Like, I think they really nailed the the wildling stuff going up to the wall. I think all that was kind of really well done. Um, <clears throat> the Stannis stuff um, was a little felt a little weird. It felt like it sort of came out of nowhere, which it does in the books too, but <laughs> it felt more like inspired. But um, yeah, the we- the purple wedding was perfect. 
This was the season with the like, the like morality thing where it's like, ooh, did uh, did uh, Cersei and uh, what's his face, uh, Jamie, Jamie, like, did he rape her? It's like, yeah, well, one I mean, all this moment. other awful shit having the show, people worry about that, but it is true. I mean, it's like. I don't know. It seems like the show makes decisions to, like, try to be edgy. It's like, well, let's, you know, have people fucking all the time and (laughs) shit like that. And really, like, it's fine. Or, like, even for the Red Wedding, uh, in the books, like, uh, Rob's wife isn't even there. and And she's not pregnant. She doesn't get stabbed, which is pretty brutal, and I liked it. But it's also like it just—it always feels like it's like fuck. it's like why, <laughs> why? But um, yeah, I think they did a lot of things right as well. Arya is always dealt with well. And- well, Arya has a great. The thing is, there are a lot of characters that all that have been fun, but didn't have great arcs. Who this season finally get a great arc? Yeah, Arya takes a while, but she's a proper badass. And yeah, they bring her to this point of like, damn, are you cold? Yeah. Uh, Sansa even gets her chance to kind of be like, oh, wow, you actually are doing something aside from wringing your hands in fear in the background. Right. What do they have her do? They just, she just like walks. She's Well, she goes uh, with um, She has uh, a little finger and yeah, then <laughs> And goes to her aunt who is fucking crazy as shit. <laughs> right. And uh, And some stuff goes down. Well, she hasn't done anything yet. She's just sort of under Littlefinger's influence, which we we don't know what Littlefinger's up to. We can only guess he wants ultimate power, of right. course. Yeah. Everyone wants ultimate power. Yeah, I don't think he's going to be marrying Daenerys, but um, just throwing it out. No, I mean, what's cool about the whole Game of Thrones, Song of Ice and Fire universe is that George R. R. Martin knows that it's the little people, the ones who started with nothing, they're the ones who want the power more than anyone. So guys like Littlefinger, guys like Varys, uh, are like really the ones running everything. And it's cool because you you have characters like Tyrion who you can't help but root for him. And then there's characters where it's like, I don't know if I should root for this guy. Well, I love that there's an ambivalence there that like no one is pure good or pure evil except for maybe Jon Snow, who we know is always going to be the the nicest guy in the entirety of Westeros. Jon Snow... You gotta love Jon Snow. I mean, I think he's kind of a guy who he's not a great. I don't think he's a great leader. I don't think. I think he's a flawed character because he. Well, I'm being real like cynical here, but he cares too much about certain people, and it's like, dude, you gotta worry about the people in front of you first. But I think that's kind of the point. This season really, I think, emphasizes that this is about him learning what it takes to be. A king, and I'm I, I I'm convinced that it's going to be Jon Snow and Daenerys at the end. Well, Daenerys is the same way. They're both young too, and, yeah. and the books are even younger. But in in this, they show like you know Daenerys is still like kind of young, and she cares about people. You know, she's not like an evil Tywin Lannister. She's, right. She's like, yeah, I'm going to stay here and help these slaves out. Yeah, she's learning how to be a queen as much as Jon, without realizing right. it, I feel, is learning to be a king. I feel like people are bored by her story a little bit. This season was not terribly interesting for her. Well, Not like the last season, yeah. which was great. Uh, it felt like she was a little afterthought this season. But that's what happens with the show. Not every, like right. Next season, we're not even going to get any Sansa. We're not going to get any Bran, who had a great run this season. Bran <laughs> did, and they, they sort of caught up with everything he's done in the book so far, that's which why, is surprising. That's why he's not Well, yeah, it's season. like, what, I'm sure they'll have a little hints of him. I hope so, because like, it was like, Bran's story is when, like, really the first time that this all-out 
goes, did we mention this is a fantasy story? <laughs> oh, by the way, yeah. Ray Harryhausen, we love him. Yeah. Here's a little trivia. <laughs> oh, mighty Tim. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, that was, I mean, yeah, that was like when the show went pretty balls out fantasy yeah and it was fun it was yeah i liked it as well as like the stuff going on at the wall the the whole attack on the wall is amazing you've got giants storming the wall like come on i love that i I mean i do love it i feel like i love it and i hate it just because i feel like after this season they're going to not even care what the books do and they're going to take out some especially with like the Greyjoy stuff i don't know what they're doing with uh theon's sister She's just sort of replacing a lot of characters that are going to come later, but yeah. maybe they won't even have them come later. Like Theon's uncle, who's a proper... He's like my favorite character in the whole series, Victorian. Well, but I think like her going to try to save Theon and then immediately leaving was just kind of like... It just felt useless to me. Did you... Uh, you know, it was funny because like, we saw so much of... of uh, uh, you know, the torture sequences with Theon. Right. No, I like that. I like showing all that. One of the memes that came out this year was Fifty Shades of Greyjoy, <laughs> which <laughs> I thought was good, funny. Actually. Although my favorite Game of Thrones meme ever was this year with, uh, I, I forget her name, the, the wildling that, that John kind of has a hard on for. Scene. But they show they show <laughs> her end scene in it, and immediately it goes shot through the heart, oh, and you're yeah. too brave. Yeah, like, I think they handled why. Jon Snow and what's her name, Egret, Egret, Egret. Yeah, uh, they handled their romance pretty good, and um, yeah, I, I think I uh, <laughs> I think I love the show. Yeah, yeah, but it's I think a, I hate it. Too. Yeah, you're, you're you're not as firmly in the ultimate geek boy for the show as me, and that's. Probably because you actually are reading the books. Yeah, I read the first three and got tired of having to keep going back and reread all the books every time a new one would finally come oh, out. Yeah, I was like, you know what? I'll wait till they're all out and then I'll read them. I mean, there's like again. 500 characters to keep track of. Yeah, that's it, sort of like it makes Dune look conservative. By yeah, comparison. absolutely. Um, but this comes with a bunch of 11 audio commentaries uh, in episode guide, so you can watch like little pop up things while the the show is actually going on. One of my favorite features for any television show to have, and they all should fucking do this, is a look back at the previous season, thank God, where you can go, oh, here's all the stuff that happened last season just to catch you up. Because, my God, there's so much shit that happens in the show, it's really easy to get confused and go, wait, what? who is that? What did he do? Right. Yes, every television show should have one of these. The, any television show with a continuing story should have one of these, and thank God Game of Thrones includes it. There's also a look at the new characters and locations, uh, the showrunners and George R. R. Martin talking about the roles that the bastard characters, Jon Snow and Ramsey Snow, play there. There's a animated history shorts going through various aspects of the characters and the things in the show. Uh, a 37-minute dissection of the ninth episode, The Watchers on the Wall, and the big, big battle, how they did it. Um, the, the Fall in a Roundtable, and this is awesome. It's 30 minutes at a roundtable fun conversation between seven cast members who died this season. Uh, that's awesome. <laughs> I was like, that's pretty fun. Uh, only who was in it? Uh, it. I did not actually get to watch the whole thing, but I, I don't want to. Say- I don't want to say either yeah. because then then it's like, oh, they die for people who haven't seen it, right. as if we haven't spoiled enough already. Uh, there's only two deleted scenes, and then there's a two minute blooper reel. I think you could have used a longer blooper reel, personally, but there's not much bloopering going on. I'm sure. Yeah, I think there's <laughs> got to be some degree of bloopering. It's it's bloopy. 
<laughs> uh, you know what? I would not be terribly thrilled to see a blooper reel for because I think that it's it would almost feel like dancing on someone's grave is uh, for the movie The Homesman that came oh, out, God. which is the dankest, darkest. Sure, lots of feel icky fun was had on that set. Yeah, feel icky and need a shower <laughs> movies oh, I've ever seen. That's that's. But hey, that's my type of movie, man. See, I can like that sort of thing. I did not like The Homesman. Oh man, I was like, what the fuck are you trying to do? What is the Tell me why you're doing it, and then I'll go, okay. But at the end of the Homesman, I was like, I have no idea what the point of that was. Why did they do? Why did they torture their audience? I had absolutely no answer for that. Uh, I wish I could like this. It's by directed by Tommy Lee Jones. Certainly is a talented performer. Also stars in the film. But... I you know he did 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 you see his first film like the three barrels the three barrels of um, yeah somebody I said do I don't want to <laughs> three that. barrels of murmur <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but the this is like a western in the no this is what the west is really like sort of sense. And I kind of like the westerns where it's not how the West really was like. <laughs> oh, you like that romantic western stuff. Or I like westerns that are deconstructuralist, but only in the context of the classic west uh, of the film genre itself, like Unforgiven, where it's like not saying this is what the West was really like, but it was saying let's take let's take characters from those westerns and and put them in the in the real world and see what would happen. Right. <laughs> um, this is set in the 1850s uh, and basically got, uh, duh, what's her name? Um, Hillary Swank. Hillary Swank, thank you, who is a spinster from New York living out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, and she wants a hub- husband, but nobody will have her because she is described as Aww. being too plain. I would totally marry the shit out uh, of Hillary yeah. Swank. She seems nice. Yeah, nice. <laughs> she can, you know, you get to go to the Oscars at least once every four years yeah. with her, you know, not so bad. But um, she's kind of about to give up when she's given the opportunity to basically drive three crazy women across the country to a place women where they can be helped. become insane, yes. yeah. Yeah, um, like all of them really, not like one of those like, oh, well, this is just like a... You know the misogyny of the times. No, they they are really insane, and with good reason. And with good reason, yeah, because the living in the wild west sucked. Yeah, <laughs> it's like yeah, all my all three of my children just died from some disease. Yeah, cool. I get to bury them. Right. There's, Crazy. When we get to see each one of them, the terrible fucking shit they had to deal with that made them that way. But uh, she realizes there's almost no way she's going to be able to do this by herself. And she ends up encountering Tommy Lee Jones as George Briggs, who is basically has a noose around his neck tied to a tree, and he's sitting on a, a, a skittish horse, and he's like, look, I'll give you whatever you want if you let me out of this. So she's like, okay, you have to come with me on this whole adventure thing and, and, and be my assistant. And so I guess there's a certain amount of Hollywood movie expectation that comes with that scenario. Mm-hmm. Do not expect any version of what you would normally think would happen there to come true in this film. No, this movie does not follow any sort of formula. And I I actually love this movie. I think this movie is like the perfect like cuz it's not show-offy. It's not no. show-offy at all. It it sort of pl- explains things in very plain language. 
you know, it's it may not be exactly how you know things went down, um, and but I think man, there's just so much truth to uh, every character, and especially Hillary Swank. Poor, well, her character is just so sad, and <laughs> yeah. it's it's and it never lets on. Like she never gets even like she gets a few moments to sort of show off that she's a good person, but. Man, I loved it because, like, to me, that's just like that's real shit. Like, and the whole movie is just watching. Like, sometimes it's just watching them do laundry, which I love. I love that shit. I love monotony. He pays extra for the laundry network. (laughs) I just I want extras with just laundry scenes. Uh, No, but I mean, I do you see that bitch cold wash that shit? (laughs) Shit, man! I wonder what kind of softener she uses. Uh, No, but I mean, and this movie is just brutally like depressing oh my god it's so and bleak. i love it i love it i want it i want i love uh, traveling st- like period traveling pieces and uh this is like one of those it's it, it's a it's a period piece and it's sort of like about a very like very isolated story and i, I kind of love it i still can't keep laughing at the idea that you're just like Man, those fucking laundry those laundry scenes. scenes, man, they fucking blew my mind. <laughs> Dude, I feel like I'm in a permanent spin cycle right now, just thinking about <laughs> oh, it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, obviously, we came down different on this one because I found like, I mean, it reaches this point where like, the kind of the beginning of the third act, they make this weird twist decision with the characters that I was like. Well, what the fuck are you going to do now, movie? <laughs> what the fuck? I love it, man. I love it. Uh, I could not get into you, this. You can't. One, you can't. Uh, I did like a. a there's a. There's a uh, cameo by James Spader. In oh here yeah. That I wish there had been more of with his character. He's he's f- kind of fun in it, and what plays out with that is kind of funny. Tim Blake Nelson. There's a lot of good cameos. Yeah, Tim Blake Nelson. John yeah. Lithgow, Meryl Streep. I William like Tim Fickner. Blake Nelson's little cameo. Uh, there is some good stuff in here. It just, I guess, for me, it just didn't coalesce. I'm sorry. I wish I could be more on your side. <laughs> um, what I did think came together a lot better, although it got, I, I think it kind of came to mixed reviews, was Saint Vincent, which is the Bill Murray can be a serious actor film for this year. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's one. Gotta every have year. one. Yeah, well, he's good at it. You know, no, who would have seen that coming? That he is as good at it as he is. Uh, this is directed, by, written, and directed by Theodore Melfi. His th- theatrical feature film debut. Is it? Yep. I thought he made something else. <clears throat> Maybe it was for television. Yeah. Um, but the story here follows Bill Murray, who's a Vietnam vet, and he is an old curmudgeon, uh, alcoholic, heavy smoker, heavy gambler, never has any money at all. Um, uh, he, he goes regularly to see his wife, who's got Alzheimer's and is in a nursing home. Basically, hey, he does her laundry for her. There you go. Oh, is that, is that hot or what? Yeah, I want more of that, man. <laughs> um, and, you know, he, he shows up every week to take care of her. Other than that, his only friend is a and one of the funniest things in this movie, one of the parts I love the best, is Naomi Watts is a really pregnant Russian prostitute that sees him regularly, who is... I mean, who knew Naomi Watts could do such a funny Russian accent that was like, this is not a role you'd normally would think, yeah, Naomi Watts, she's the one I'll get for this. You think Kristen Wiig or somebody like that. Right. She's so good in it. She is. Um, but he's, you know, I mean, he's, his life is largely, it seems, 
one of quiet desperation. And one day, new neighbors moving in. Uh, now, hold on. Don't get upset here. But it's Melissa McCarthy. Okay. Uh, her and her 12-year-old son, Oliver, move in. Uh, basically, they damage a tree branch when the, the truck is moving in. And he exaggerates the scenario, claiming they owe him restitution. Somehow, it ends up in a scenario where he ends up starting to babysit her son for her. Uh, and of course, there is bonding that ensues. Ah, the bonding. This is, yeah, this is kind of like a, a really grumpy version of about a boy. <laughs> <laughs> it is kind of like that. Yeah, it's one of those like quirky like indie movies where it's like this guy's got this problem, and this girl. Wait till you see, she's pregnant and she's a hooker, and it's like it's like, a, like it's piling it on. But I think this movie handles it pretty well. It's like a seventies voiceover to a trailer. <laughs> this girl's pregnant. Oh, check out this guy. He's got a heroin addiction. It's like the Little Miss Sunshine effect of indie movies, where it seems like every character has to have their problems. Yeah, very um, flawed. You know, the little kid is getting bullied, and then. But I think it's nice because like they these problems all get connected you know like mm-hmm. bill murray teach he's grumpy but he teaches this kid how to fight which is kind of a cliche but it's also it's also handed well and i think it's a, it's well directed um it's easy to see why these like pretty big hollywood actors obviously decided to help this guy in his first film um but yeah and and actually heard name you mentioned you wouldn't think name watts would be good for that actually heard she didn't try out for that she tried out for the melissa mccarthy thing oh, originally, okay. and, and then, then they were like hey what do you think they're about like, hey, what do you think about being a russian hooker She's i like, think it's a great career turn for I think her to play too, that comedic yeah. of a role um chris o'dowd is in this as well it's always fun terrence terrence howard scott adds it um i think that the this film's strength and weakness is in its sweetness but i think yeah. a, there's it never goes so far as to be saccharine Mm-hmm. And I think that's its strength is that it tells a genuinely sweet story, but it never feels, you know, it never feels like it's hitting false notes while it's doing it. And in right. fact, by the end, I thought the sweet, the sweet aspect of it really worked. But at the same time, there's nothing that's really going to strike you as unexpected or new going yeah. on either. This is kind of a by the book type of, of this type of story. Uh, it's just, it's just handled so well for what it is. Right, I'm not like completely cynical. I can like a good, feel good, heartfelt story. Sure, as long as uh, but, uh, everyone yeah, gotta dies, earn it. And- you gotta earn it. <laughs> yeah, but as long as you have characters doing heroin, yeah, and, not, and, no, and, I mean, and there's got to be at least one laundry scene. <laughs> yeah, there's got to be the laundry scene. Okay. Yeah, no, I like even you know Melissa McCarthy is very quiet. Has a nice quiet performance. And I think uh, everyone just everyone does it really well. And Bill Murray is great. I mean, he's not perfect, but he he plays the grumpy guy. I almost for, you know I forgot it was Bill Murray, and I was like, oh, I, this is just a guy. I think the end was a little too sentimental for me. I was like, because because I felt like once I knew what was going to happen, I was like, okay, now we're just they're setting it up, or I'm just sort of waiting for it. But, you know, it's still nice. And if you like heartfelt movies, this is definitely one of the better ones. Well, we, went, we came out of depressing, went to kind of a uh, bittersweet. Now let's just go to plain goofy and talk about the Blu-ray home release of The Interview. Coming out, strangely, after the Netflix release of The Interview. <laughs> That's a weird release strategy that Sony's got for this film. 
Um, this, of course, is the uh, Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg written and directed uh, film starring Rogen and uh, James Franco that became one of the biggest news stories of the month that it came right. out because there was a large Sony hack. I mean, where have you people been living? You don't know this already. I have to explain right. this to you. But uh, there was a hack of Sony, and then later the hackers claimed that uh, they were Korea and were trying to halt the North Korea and trying to halt the release of the interview. And Sony pulled the movie from theaters out of fear, I guess. Did they I, ever find out who did that? I just read a really interesting piece from a bunch of very high-level programmers yeah. and captains of industry who were like, I'm sorry, the FBI says it's North Korea, they're full of shit. There's right. no way that North Korea did this. This was clearly someone after the fact trying to cover their tracks. It was in, it was almost certainly an insider job of it somebody. It didn't feel like it was like an official government doing it because they were making stuff like, okay, you can show the movie, but just don't show like the end where he dies. Like Just right. don't show that. Okay, you can show all that, but like, just be nice to us. Like, and the, the weird, just didn't fail. Like the weirdest thing about this home release, which is packed with extra features, because they mm. really want to make it worth your while to own it rather than just watch it for free online, uh, is that there is no mention of any of that in any of the bonus. Well, yeah, features. I wonder if it was probably made before or after. Maybe. I mean, it might have like been the the commentary. Even you think they do that usually pretty well afterwards, and. Yeah, there's no mention Did at all. Did you listen to the commentary? No, I just I read somebody else's like highlights of it, and they were like, "Yeah, they specifically mentioned." Nope, never oh, comes wow. up. Weird. <laughs> uh, but the film itself, despite all the you know people demanding they get to see it, I think it's just an okay <laughs> movie. I don't think yeah. it stands up next to the previous work by these two uh, writer directors. Uh, this is the end, which I thought was, was excellent. Yeah. yeah, just hold your stomach, laughing funny. But that's not to say that the interview is a terrible film, because it's not. No. It's good, goofy fun when it needs to be. It over relies on dick and poop jokes, as you'd expect, but sometimes even those are funny. Um, there's definitely enough here that I think if you are if you like a big, dumb, goofy comedy that's done well, you're not going to come away disappointed. Uh, the story, such as it is... <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, follows Dave Skylark. Dave Skylark. Uh, I'm Dave Skylark, and I'm out, played by James Franco, and he hosts the talk show Skylark Tonight that is like really like e-entertainment television type stuff. I mean, it's really shallow, uh, we see, but they get they get good stuff. They're well known for this. Like, there's a... There's a joke where Rob Lowe admits that he, like... Uh, has always been wearing a wig and pulls it off on the air for the first <laughs> time, and he's like almost bald. Uh, you know, uh, the one of the funniest things uh, uh, Eminem is on there and admits without even like blinking an eye that he's a homosexual. And like, wait a minute, I, wait, hold on, wait, go back to what you were just saying. It's like, yeah, I'm gay. What? <laughs> yeah, no. <duh. laughs> and that's actually really funny stuff. But Seth Rogen, who plays his producer, is a little disappointed that this is where he's ended up in life, that it's like he's doing this thing and yes, he's doing well, making a lot of money, but nobody takes him seriously in the field of journalism. So he's telling his buddy, look, I want to do something more serious. And they find out that the North Korean leader, leader Kim Jong-un is actually a huge fan of the show. And like, what if we could get this guy to let us do an interview? And they contact him. It's agreed upon. They fly out to Korea to do this. And, you know, wackiness ensues. Um, Kim Jong-un is not who they 
think he's going to be at least outwardly. Well, uh, did you say they're hired to kill him? Yeah, oh, yeah, I'm sorry. And the CIA, <laughs> the, yeah, the, the CIA uh, agent Lacey, who uh, is, um, oh, what is her name? Uh, the actress, yeah, uh, Lizzie Kaplan is just gorgeous. Shows uh, yeah. up, uh, honey dicks him or honey pots him, you know, um, basically by where, uh, showing lots of cleavage, which is a running joke through the whole movie. People yeah. getting honey potted or honey dicked um, to go there and use this poison to try and, and kill him. They get out there, and Franco is shown such a good time by him. He's like, "No, oh, that guy's all right. Nothing is as it seems." Uh, just silliness all across the board, and it all, of course, culminates in the actual interview where things get completely crazy. I, I, I was really surprised that I enjoyed this as much as I did, quite frankly, because I was expecting from everything I'd heard to come away with, like, meh. Yeah, it got a lot of buildup, and it's like, you can't, like, all that kind of hype usually ends up being uh, a disappointment. I actually, I mean, I liked it too, and I think it, I may even liked it even more than you. Maybe I don't know, because I saw it like with my, uh, with like it was like the perfect movie to watch on Christmas Eve, like with my m- with my brothers who like it's like yeah, it's just dick and penis jokes, but I think Seth Rogen, you know, does it pretty well. I think actually my favorite part aspect of it was when they went to North Korea. That's when the movie really started getting going. Yeah, and great. Performances by Diana Bing and Randall Park yeah. as like the yeah who who nails Kim Jong Un being like oh, this, yeah. a guy who is not just a one dimensional guy who's like yes a psycho but like a psycho who's got a lot more to him than just wanting to kill the whole world. <laughs> I think I'm the only one who thinks this, but I think like he's channeling. Well, because I know Kim Jong Un like actually knows English pretty well, like, but I think he's also channeling that uh, the guy. He's from Fargo, like the the Asian dude in Fargo. Oh, right. Who has a conversation because he almost sort of has that, like, oh, Marge, of, of course, yeah, I would. <laughs> He's almost sort of got like I can that, see that. that sort of North Dakota accent. So I think he got like maybe inspired by it, but that's just me. But I think, yeah, they did a great bang up job. And uh, the only weak spot I thought was like James Franco in like the first half of the movie. Until he gets to North Korea, he's just so annoying. Like, yeah. And that might be on purpose, but I feel like he's just phoning it in hardcore and hamming it up so much well, that the, it's just like bad. The biggest problem with this movie is that he is playing stupid to that world. No one is that stupid. Right. That level he's, of stupid, yeah. which is always a pet peeve of mine in comedies uh, where you're like, I'm just not interested in comedies about people that are so dumb they're legally retarded. <laughs> I, and this is kind of him in there, whereas Rogan is playing a guy who's yeah, maybe not the brightest bulb in the house either, but he's certainly playing someone who seems like maybe he's a real guy. Franco always is a caricature. Right. You know? it, yeah, it feels like Franco, like, it would have been cool maybe if Dave Scarlark was, like, kind of like that on interviews and stuff, but then, like, he sort of turns it off when he is in real life, but Agreed. they don't really have that. I mean, there's funny gags where he's real stupid when they're, like, tr- testing them to do the poison and stuff, and those those work pretty well. But you're right. It just goes to the point of, all right, Franco. What, like, is every performance you give us like has to be like performance art? Like, it has to be like. I almost feel like he's fucking with us. Yeah. I've like, but I think he actually does do a great job when, when it's him and Randall Park. I think that chemistry there is almost like real su- sweet and like stupid. 
The, their Katy Perry scene is oh is yeah, a great they're both bonding to Katy yeah. Perry, uh, right. which I it's you awesome. know I could bond to pictures of Katy Perry's breasts, but maybe not her songs. Oh come on, dude! What, what, is, was me, that wrong of me, me to say that? <laughs> God, she's hot. Uh, um, this, but like I said, this comes with a. They make this well worth your money for extra features, and this has become true for most of this type of goofy comedy making. Is they always load it up, and there's an audio commentary with Rogan and Goldberg. Uh, deleted, extended, and alternate scenes, a whole bunch of them. There's a seven-minute gag reel, and the rest of this is pretty much gag reels. Uh, Line-o-ramas, where they basically go through a bunch of the like different ways they did the lines in here. Like, you got stank! I got stank, Nick! Smells like asparagus! Like <laughs> or no, when he said guacamole. <laughs> How'd that happen? Uh, there's a, you know, a puff piece where everyone's talking about how great the directors are. There is uh, looks at the lead at the characters. There's the audition tapes uh, for Randall Park, who, like we said, is just so great in this, um, as well as another feature just about that. Um, there's a video that King 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 John Un does for a online dating site. A look at the very cute puppy in here. Uh, the t- live tiger that's in the film and how they did that. Uh, like a feature on basically them improving the stuff uh, and, and more. So. I think if you really like this film, they're they're genuinely making this worth your buck. Right. All right. Next up is the documentary about the the film critic that made film criticism accessible to everyone. Now, film criticism in a formal sense was really sort of the like Pauline Kale and what's his name Andrew Saris, I think was his name, who really were like, yes, we're going to discuss film, but we're going to do it in a very serious, liter- you know, like literate way. Roger Ebert was the guy who said, look, don't be a dick. Film can be enjoyed by, film is enjoyed by everyone. You can, you can bring audiences into this discussion, uh, with doing, of course, the show Siskel and Ebert. Uh, and he was really kind of the film critic I most identified with growing up. I mean, he's a populist and there's nothing wrong with that because films by their definition are populist. Uh, and this documentary is a life itself is a charming little whimsical look at this guy, his life, why he was so loved, why he was important, and indeed what problems he had to overcome just to get through. Like I didn't know he was a pretty severe alcoholic for a while. Like he was yeah. the party guy at the at a bar for several decades. Right. Uh I you know, he's one of those people I'm always sad I never got the chance to meet. I would have loved to have met Roger Ebert, probably before he got the weird thing with his jaw because that just creeps me out <laughs> yeah it is it's, it's super sad like you're right it is charming and it's i mean steve steve james is amazing he's a great documentary i don't think anyone else could have done it as well as him because it could have just been like a montage documentary but the fact that he showed the nitty-gritty of like his final days it just adds this layer of yeah, this guy, like, he maybe he was, maybe he mainstreamed film criticism, but he also was a brilliant writer, very, like, ambitious kind of guy who people, you know, some people liked, some people didn't, but he had, he, he wrote beautifully about films he liked, and, you know, he wrote beautifully about films he didn't like, and, and I, I mean, I remember when I was a kid, I read all of his stuff, just oh, because yeah. he just, he put it so perfectly and to love film that much, it's like, yeah, that's how I feel. Like, if you can find someone who can, like, de- tell you exactly how you're feeling, like, there's no better, there's no better feeling than that. Agreed. Um, and I, like I said, I really think it gets 
this film gets him. Yeah. It never is completely a puff piece, but it it's a tribute to who the man really was and why he was the way he was. I love the when they do the sequence about how he would like once a year he would at this festival show a, a, you know an older film in its entirety and then for 3 days would go over it frame by frame with a you know a rapt audience talking about every single shot right. and and everything that happened in the movie and it's you know emphasizes the point that this is not a guy who was only thought about movies in terms of you know zeros and ones thumbs up or thumbs down that was just the technique for the show right. this is a guy who truly was completely absorbed by films who who couldn't have done anything else yeah i remember i saw him do a shot by shot of citizen kane at savannah film festival like 10 years ago oh wow and uh he, it was amazing or it was a, yeah uh, but he couldn't even. We didn't even get through the whole movie because it was just so. Every frame was just like he was so passionate about it. And mm. I, I mean, this this movie shows like how many people loved how passionate. Even like the little Martin Scorsese thing where he felt like it, they were friends, and then he wrote a bad review about one of his films. And I, I was just like, oh man, that must be brutal because it's just like you. You could tell Roger Ebert just wanted to praise everything like he wanted just he wanted to love things right and i think that's what this movie sort of shows (laughs) is that he might have been like kind of rough with his words but and i loved like the siskel the siskel niebert dichotomy there where they showed that a little bit it was great yeah i mean there's definitely no end has been said about the fact that these guys were not the best of friends but in but this really has a different look at that saying no did they agree did they disagree a lot? Did they even fight openly and insult each other? Yes, they did. But in the end, they were actually very close. And in fact, they, they started, Ebert spoke at, at, at Siskel's funeral, and it was it was actually kind of uh, touching. I thought to watch very this very yeah. d- this different interpretation of that relationship than we are you're used to seeing. Right. Even though we do get to see the classic like outtakes of them just kvetching at each other like crazy. They're the best. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, this is good stuff. One of the better documentaries this year, nominated for an Oscar. It comes with quite a few deleted... It didn't get nominated. Oh, did it? I thought it no. did get nominated. Well, that's a, that's a shame. Yeah, it's right a, that was a letdown. A lot of people thought it would. Uh, but um, lots of deleted scenes, you know, that doesn't offer anything that new, but it's got you know, nice little stories about him. Um, the, a Sundance tribute uh, interview with the director, sort of a self-interview, and then like kind of an EPK TV promo. Um, yeah, this is good stuff. All right, next up we have the uh, theory of everything. So go ahead and start. What's the theory? What's your theory of everything? Hmm, that's a tough one, uh, Alex. <laughs> I'll take the rapists for eight hundred. I'll take the fur. <laughs> eight tits. <laughs> what was it? What was what was the one in the forty fifth anniversary? Oh, Less le tits. Le tits. <laughs> le tits have or something like that. Up yours, Trebek. That's so funny. Uh, anyway, no, the theory of everything is the story, sort of of. Uh, Theoretical physicist Stephen Hawking, played here by the great Eddie Redmayne, who's finally getting some real attention for his, you know, performances. I think Eddie Redmayne's a terrific actor who has largely been what do you like turned in? into 
Oh, that guy, Eddie Redmayne. You know, yeah, yeah, no, I know who that is. See, that even, maybe ginger guy. So, like, this is my first time I've really noticed him, so maybe, uh, I don't know. See, I, My Week with Marilyn, he was the main character uh, in that. I that. Really loved that. Les Miserables, which I'm All a right. huge fan of. He's like Les one Mis. of the primary characters in that. And yet, somehow, people just kind of forget about him. Here, they're not going to forget about him, because he really gets the physicality and and personality of Stephen Hawking, uh, even where Stephen Hawking said, honestly, sometimes I felt like I was just watching a mirror watching this movie. It was startling <laughs> how good his performance was, even though, and to be clear, Hawking was 100% thrilled with the film. And you got to say it like Stephen Hawking, though. I wasn't thrilled with the movie. <laughs> I wasn't thrilled with the movie. I wasn't thrilled with what I... Uh, Stephen Hawking to me will always be in the holodeck playing poker with the cast of Star Trek and Einstein. But uh, here he's with Felicity Jones, who plays his wife, who uh, the the book this is based on was written by her. And uh, she this is an emotional story. It's not focusing on you know, the theoretical physics side of it, it's almost that the scientist part of it is almost an afterthought. It's kind of more about this man coming to peace with the world around him. And I thought kind of irritatingly making this big point of him, like going through a transition from being an atheist to going, I don't know, maybe there is a God in a way that felt kind of cloying. And I know that he was personally like Stephen Hawking was personally irritated by it's like, what? Dude, I'm like solving major problems, like questions of the universe, and you're only concerned about is about whether or not I believe in God. Fuck right. you. <laughs> well, you know, a lot of his stuff had. To, I mean, a lot of his stuff had to do with like once he f- solved his theorem, it's like, oh well, maybe there wasn't a God, or maybe this directly correlates to God. Yeah, I think it. You're right. It's like, uh, it's. You know, what are we gonna deal with that? I felt like some of this is a little too cloyingly oscar beggy if you will you know like oh, please give us an award we want an award I, give us an award yeah i mean i i did not like this film okay <laughs> i did not like this film at all because of that reason i am i'm all for movies that have a you know like i like most of what the oscar does i mean oscar stuff does but this is just so obviously oscar baity yeah and I mean, I like Stephen Hawking too, and and you're right, Eddie Redmayne is good. I think uh, people will remember him more for his great turn in Jupiter Ascending. Oh God! Is, how could you forget? People him are already ca- saying that Jupiter Ascending is the Norbit that's going to cost him the Oscar. Oh geez. But I'll be honest, I really don't think he ever had a shot this year at the Oscar. No, it'll be for like Keaton or somebody. I don't know, but. See, like I, I, I care about the Oscars, but I don't also don't give a shit. Yeah. And this movie is like one, like the fact that this movie got nominated for Best Picture shows that they're so out of touch with, like, to me, they're out of touch with what's actually good. Like, there's so many better movies that could have been nominated than this movie. Yeah. This movie is competent. It knows exactly what it's a gr- it's a good director. He directed Man on Wire, uh, which and, was a uh, great Hoop Dreams. Hoop Dreams. No, that's Steve James. This is James Marsh, I believe. Oh, is it? Oh, I'm sorry. You're right. Oh, yeah, I yeah, was mixed t- up yeah, with yeah. the previous guy. So. Um, but, yeah, this this movie just never feels like... Uh, it, it never made me care. But the thing is, this movie, I hate it because I when there was like the emotional scenes, I was like sort of get like catching myself getting into it. And then I was like, well, no, fuck you, movie. I'm not going <laughs> to fall for that shit. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like part of the problem is that like it didn't organically go from one period of time to the other. It kind of felt yeah. like it was skipping too fast through stuff. Right. The stuff I really wanted to know more about, which was honestly, and this is from my viewpoint, is learn how how did he come to these conclusions about the science part of things? How did what did it mean to him? as a person to be reorganizing the way we think of the universe and physics. I mean, I'm interested in that kind of stuff, which I know is a harder sell, no question, but the movie barely touches on the science of things. And I find, you know, I mean, whereas it's interesting to have a story about certainly, you know, a guy who's really smart, who becomes, uh, you know, starts thinking he's going to die. You know, it's still shocking. Hawking is still alive. He should have, by all doctors reckoning, he should have died 30 years ago. Right. Um, Yes, that's interesting, but it's the movie feels like it's not really about Stephen Hawking. It's about any guy in this scenario. <laughs> right. No, I agree. And I also think uh, this movie, it just, it doesn't, yeah, you're right. It doesn't, it's like the Goodwill Hunting thing where it's like, yeah, he's just a brilliant sort of normal guy who wakes up late and doesn't go want to go to school. But it's like, come on, dude, like. He's also a brilliant mathematician. Show us, like, it just seems like he was, like, being lazy, and it doesn't show us the process. So it's like, yeah, I mean, that's the more interesting points. I mean, and then it has, like, these just, like, schlocky, typical Oscar bait moments where he's he's done his thesis. Let's get all the guys together and take him around the park, and let's have nice sweeping dolly shots and beautiful little... (laughs) And I'm just like, oh, fuck you. Like, maybe I just hate, like... Maybe I just hate like these like biopics. And I, I kind of I'm kind of done with biopics in general. But fuck you and the Dolly <laughs> shit shot you rode in on. <laughs> you fucking motherfucker. <laughs> All right, so yeah, theory of everything, mixed results. I'm glad that you were kind of with me on that one. I know it was a some people really loved it, and I just thought it was kind of manipulative and yeah. not that terribly inventive. Hawking, important important guy in history. This not an important film. All right, so now we're gonna go to. The lightning round! I'm not overly fond of what follows. I haven't done one of these for a while, but the truth, the reason is, is because we got sent a stack of films by Olive Films that has been reliably and consistently putting out every month on Blu-ray. Very bare bones, but still. uh, Older films that maybe aren't the you know they're they're from great people where they aren't always the best stuff they always did but are other well worth seeing usually films uh, and we got a whole stack of them this week so just jumping right into it first off with kiss me stupid <laughs> not kiss me till I'm stupid kiss me comma stupid kiss me kiss me stupid, stupid. <laughs> and this is a Billy Wilder film uh, who of course is one of the Hollywood greats. This is just not one of his greatest movies. And one of the reasons they annoyed me is uh like Dean Martin is so thoroughly unlikable and slimy in this film playing himself. What the fuck is he doing? I, I'm like, why did you even agree to be in this movie? <laughs> is he sort of playing himself too? It's like alright. Uh, basically he's driving from Vegas to Los Angeles and uh the small town uh 
sabotages his car at the gas station so that he's forced to stick around for the night where Ray Walston, who is just mugging intolerably through this entire <laughs> film, is a piano teacher and song music writer. And then the gas station attendant, who is his his uh, lyrics writer, they're like, we've been trying forever to get somebody to pay attention to our songs and we just can't get our foot in the door. Now that he's here, we'll force him to listen to our songs. Good plan, guys. But well, Yeah, right. But Walston's the most jealous guy in the world and his beautiful wife he's afraid that uh, and rightly so that Dean Martin is going to try and seduce her so he comes up with a plot to make his wife go away for the night and replace her with this local prostitute played by Kim Novak uh, who is you know supposed to okay you can seduce her that's fine just so you know he's distracted whatever he'll be happy he can sleep with my fake wife and it's the dumbest plan ever yeah, and I ultimately I felt like, especially the conclusion, I was like, "Wait, seriously? <laughs> this is how this film is going to end?" Yeah, <laughs> it was a different time, a different way of thinking, guys. When <laughs> women were treated like, well, you know, women back then. The women. It's it's Kim Novak play both roles. She's this is a dual role, right? No, no, she's just she's just Polly. Oh, she's just the. I see because like the the wife looks a lot like Kim Novak, so I was kind of confused. I was like, yeah, I think it was maybe, uh, Felicia Farr. Who, was that who, her? Who, who played? Well, the like I mean, they're both they're both great, and I, th- I think like yeah, this movie just it's just got a w- way different way of thinking. It still looks great. I mean, like I like the black and white cinematography, and it's got like its moments, but it's mostly yeah. Yeah, mostly like, okay, there's a reason why this was kind of forgotten about. A much better film, but yet still very questionably misogynistic, is Mm. How to Murder Your Wife, also known as Basil Fawlty's favorite movie. (laughs) We're literally on the show at one point. He's like, I've watched it 60 times. Oh, my God. Uh, This is a Jack Lemmon film directed by Richard Quine, who did quite a few films with Jack Lemmon. Um, and this is a film I remember very fondly from my childhood. I thought this was really funny, and sure enough, it actually is a pretty funny film, as Lemon plays a popular cartoonist who writes about sort of a James Bond-type character that he goes and sets up these elaborate uh, things where he goes out and, and kind of play-acts everything that happens in the strip, saying, I would never ask my character to do anything I wouldn't actually do. Uh, but he he's a devoted bachelor and very open misogynist, and he's at a wedding one night when he gets really drunk and ends up going home with the girl who jumps out of a cake and uh, and apparently married her who speaks no English but is is no question really really ridiculously hot the Italian Verna Lisi who is being poised at this point in Hollywood to step into Marilyn Monroe's shoes uh, it never actually happened because she uh-huh. wasn't as charismatic as Monroe but she sure was gorgeous anyway Stanley wants out of this situation Jack Lemon. And doesn't really really know how, how what to do about it. She's not going to make it easy if he wants to divorce her. And she's so sweet and so hot, too. It's kind of hard to... You don't want to say anything bad to this woman. But he decides, basically, he's going to live vicariously through his comic book and plot out her murder, but not really do it. He, but he still play-acts the whole thing with a dummy. The problem is, she sees the comic strip in the morning after the party where he's play-acted through this stuff and leaves him just disappears. And then everyone who's seen these strips are like, oh my God, you've actually murdered your wife. All of this culminates in a trial with maybe the single most anti-woman comedy sequence in the history of film. <laughs> that, clo- that like cutaway to like the women just sitting there 
as as the judge makes his like decision is just like the most soul sucking thing for anyone to see. <laughs> it's such a shame. Faces because otherwise, I think this is a really cute, funny movie. But oh my god, it's so you squirm like crazy watching the last twenty minutes of yeah. this. Thing. And then it, tr- it tries to backpedal. You'll see, but I mean, it's just mostly. Yeah, that ending is just... Like, whoa! <laughs> way different way of thinking, guys. Things that would not happen today in yes. film. <laughs> Certainly not out of America, anyway. Yeah. Uh, next up is Caveman, the 1981 slapstick comedy film with almost no dialogue, at, or English dialogue at all, written and directed by Carl Gottlieb and starring Ringo Starr as a caveman, who is the nerd of the cave group and really wants to sleep with Barbara Bach, who is the hot, basically, cheerleader in the... Think of this as high school. You almost have to. It is a high right. school movie in a lot of ways. But she's with the big, bad, monstrous caveman guy, uh, played by John Ma- Ma- the dear departed John Matusak. Uh, and, uh, you know, there there's a bit of, like, alpha male going on, but ultimately... Ringo Starr is tiny, he's huge, what are you going to do? Ringo Starr goes out on his own and finds his own group of people and starts basically using their wits to become superior, like learning how to use fire, stuff like that. Uh, Shelley Long is in here playing the you know, kind of nerdy girl who likes him, but he still can't stop thinking about uh, Barbara Bach. Dennis Quaid, a very young Dennis Quaid, plays his, yeah. his best friend. Uh you know, lots of great little appearances in this from like Jack Guilford, uh, Richard Mall plays the abom- abominable snowman. <laughs> the thing about this though is this is a really bad movie in a yeah. lot of ways. It's you see what they're going for that they want to be like sort of almost old fashioned in their slapstick in a Charlie Chaplin sort of way, but with a uh, you know a sleazier tone to it perhaps. Right. But there's still something. Even as bad as this is and groan-worthy, there's still something so kind of innocent about it that I found myself kind of reluctantly liking it anyway. Yeah. No, I think I think you're right. I, I, I'm not even sure what to think of it because it it it's, doesn't feel like it's just weird. And it's from the the writer of uh, Jaws, so that's another like weird. Yeah. Thing. Well, how did that like, happen? He, he started directing movies, and this is what he chose. It seems like a weird choice of a movie. Like who decided to make this movie? But, you know, like, it was made in the early 80s, and it's still got, like, some cool, like, stop-motion animation. They're goofy, but I, I like the effort there. Like, I like that people were still trying to do, like, some Ray Harryhausen stuff. It doesn't save the movie, by no. any means. No, um, But it, it, like, I, you know, I liked It's sort of charming in its own way, but... It is a weird, like, it's just weird that Ringo Starr did it, and it, it, it just... I remember watching this on TV when I was younger, too, and I was always just, like, so confused because I was trying to figure out what everyone was saying, and I, now I realize, oh, yeah, no one's saying shit. No yeah. one's saying anything. There's a dictionary that they even have that they would issue a little pamphlet of when you saw it in the theater uh, with what the basic caveman words meant. Not that you need it. You yeah. can figure it out pretty much yourself. One funny ge- joke in here, though, is that there's a Korean caveman guy played by Evan C. Kim who played uh, the Bruce Lee parody in the My Name is Bruce films. Oh, really? And um, I, I, believe, I think that's him. Uh, and he's the only one who knows how to speak English. And he just speaks regular English, and then he's just exasperated that everybody else is so stupid. Right. I love that, too. Yeah. <laughs> it's a funny joke. The, the dinosaurs are pretty funny looking. They've all got googly eyes. Yeah. Yeah. But it's goofy. Ultimately, this is... a. Uh, 
Only if you're desperate for, uh, uh, you know, to see every last slapstick Put it on the movie. background if you like some slapstick. Uh, also, uh, probably something for just the desperate who want to see every last psychedelic movie ever made is ah. Psych Out, a 1968 counterculture era film uh, with Jack Nicholson. This may be the only film I can think of that with Jack Nicholson with really long hair. Yeah. I, yeah, he's super young in this. This yeah. is like one of, maybe it's... No, this isn't the first, but I mean, this was like maybe his first starring role. It was certainly an early one for him. Uh, Susan Strasberg plays a deaf runaway who's arrived in Hate Ashbury in San Francisco right when you wanted to arrive at Hate Ashbury in San Francisco, <laughs> uh, and is looking for her brother Steve, played uh, briefly here by Bruce Dern, who's a hippie who has gone off the deep end from taking too much of some chemical thing, <laughs> probably LSD. I don't know. Yeah. They never really say specifically, and it she meets. Sick. Uh, Jack Nicholson and his group of friends, and they're like, oh, we'll take care of you, don't worry about it. And there's lots of encounters with them doing drugs, and them having sex, and then them, them doing drugs. Funerals and, and, and yeah, shit fake, like that. You know, like, weird, like, what was the point of that entire scene? Guys having hallucinations about The Walking Dead, which wouldn't even happen for, like, another 40 years. So, I... I, <laughs> I mean, for me, it was like, I, I didn't live in the that era, obviously, and I just, it was kind of fun to see like we have hipsters now but like they had hippies but the thing is about hippies is they had an excuse they did drugs like hipsters are just fucking boring <laughs> and like vegan shit and they even had like a philosophy at least yeah. too you know I mean, like, yeah and they had a reason to be mad at and um, th- this is like hollywood trying to get in on what they looked at as like the current craze and exploit it and and there's not i didn't this didn't go as like dark with the sort of like oh look what happens if you become a hippie as i was right. expecting it to there's a bit of that but it doesn't go overboard i think this is like great put on at the background in a party yeah film, it's, you know? it's got some good psychedelic images it's weird that dick clark produced this yep that was it's like when, one of his only movies he's produced it's like i guess dick clark wanted some hippie stuff and uh that song by uh, uh strawberry alarm clock that's da, in this. Da, 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 da. It's like this great song that, like, yeah, this is the movie. Cool. It's, it's creepy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but anyway, yeah. I mean, it's all right. It's it's more than anything a curiosity to see Jack Nicholson, young Jack Nicholson, with long hair. Yeah, for hair. completeness of Jack Nicholson, as well as a curiosity, but an ugly one is the Wild Angels, which is one of the early like outlaw biker films when that was becoming all the rage and. Why this was a big influence on people, I'll never know, because these are the biggest bunch of unlikable douchebags ever. <laughs> like, it makes the hippies look like they got their shit together. These guys are, like, all wearing Nazi regalia the whole time, and they are indeed thorough, hardcore racists, and they rape each other, and they just, they're horrible. Peter Fonda is the leader of this group, the, the Wild Angels, uh, and he's... But I think Nancy Sinatra was his girlfriend. Yeah. Uh, Bruce Dern is is kind of his his best buddy, and Diane Ladd, Ladd plays his girlfriend. And it's just one of those. There's not really a plot other than, hey, the cops don't like us, man. Fuck the man. They suck. Uh, and then one of the characters dies. And okay, you can't make this shit up. <laughs> At his funeral, they beat up the priest. First off, like beat the shit is out of him. Priest or is his dad? No, it was supposed to be a priest oh, they hired to I come they in. Like beat up his uh, and then they gang rape his widow. 
Yeah. And, and it's not like they didn't like the guy or didn't <laughs> like her. There was no reason for it other than, you know, that's just what you do. <laughs> yeah. I mean, here's the thing. I would love, like, a real, like, hard look at biker stuff. But I feel like this was, like, trying to romanticize it. And, like, they're just terrible people. Why would you ever want to romanticize it? Yeah. And, like, it'd be one thing. I mean, like, Sons of Anarchy effectively romanticizes it. Mm-hmm. You're like, oh, wow, okay, bikers aren't all bad, even if they are drug-dealing criminals, they're still... You can see why it would be fun to hang out with them. Not in this film. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're like, I would never get anywhere near the, anyone right. in this movie. Uh, yeah, it does have the one really memorable sequence with Peter Fonda where he gets to do a line that's been quoted a lot of times and, in fact, was used prominently in a Mud Honey song in the 80s where he says, we want to be free. We want to be free to ride our machines without being hassled by the man. <laughs> and we want to get loaded. <laughs> I don't know if this is an iconic line, but I, I've heard this before where, where he's like, where are you guys going? Anywhere but here. Yep, yep, That's that is as well. Well, we are reaching the end of the show, and our last title we're going to review today is not our giveaway, but I'll get to that. And that is The Tale of the Princess Kaguya. Uh, this is We got to see this at Fantastic Fest this year. I, I I think it was was Fantastic Fest, not yeah, South Fantastic by, right? Fest. Fantastic Fest. Yeah, uh, I get. I sometimes forget which one it was. Right, <laughs> I, it's either Fantastic. It's all. If I saw a festival, it was either Fantastic Fest or South by Southwest. Definitely. Uh, this was Fantastic Fest. This is probably the last film by the co-creator of Studio Ghibli, uh, Asao Takahata. I'm sure I'm saying that slightly <laughs> wrong, and I apologize. Um, uh, you know, I mean, obviously Miyazaki is the pro- like the better known of the two, but he did not as much output, but still some really big stuff. Like I believe his was a Grave of the Fireflies was the That's really one, like yeah. whoa movie that they yeah. put out. Um, this is not a Miyazaki style film at all either. Uh, it was unfortunately a box office flop. Nobody went to go see it, and you understand why. It's all hand-drawn. It's very simplistic, like, watercolors look. But critics everywhere loved the shit out of it. It was nominated for an Oscar right. because it's a really good I mean, movie. It's beautiful. I loved it. I think it's... Yeah, it's a shame no one went to see it. I mean, uh, you know, I, I'm not, like, a huge fan of them dubbing uh, American voices, but they always do, like... I don't know if Pixar's still working with them... Um, or Disney is, but Disney usually distributes it here and they get like some pretty good guys to do the dubbing. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a shame because this movie really is like it, it, it takes, it's a long movie and, and it takes you on like a long sort of like, it takes a while to get to its point, but its point is just so perfect. And, and it's so, it's great. just so simplistically beautiful. This yeah. whole time in that sense that, all of Ghibli's films have this feeling of sort of peace mm. about them, you know, and and just like the beauty of staring at a gorgeous painting and the feeling you get of appreciating art in that way. They're animated films it comes across with. And uh, the story here is this, uh, this bamboo cutter finds a miniature girl inside of a bamboo shoot and he believes she must be a goddess or something and takes her home. And they adopt her, calling her princess. She starts growing unnaturally fast into a young lady. Whenever she bumps into someone or gets hurt or something like <laughs> right, that. Right, she, she shoots up three inches. Uh, and uh, eventually it becomes known... Uh, 
and she they they come across uh, he comes across a bunch of gold and rich stuff in the bamboo same bamboo grove, and he uses this to try and prove that she's divine royalty. Uh, and basically, when she's put in the position to like okay become a proper princess, she discovers that this is not what I want. Right, uh, and that sounds very simple, and it is very simple, but. <clears throat> There's so much be- haunting beauty in this movie. Um, it's it's very touching. It's very, yeah. I mean, I found myself moved practically to tears at just this simple elegance. It's like you don't see movies. You don't see enough movies that like truly have a good female like a- like aspect that you know resonates with everyone. And it's like yeah, you could feel that way too. Like you're in a situation you don't want to be in. And I mean, this is just brutal. Like some of these scenes are just brutal. And to me, like uh, if I watched this as a younger kid, it'd probably maybe fuck me up a little bit. I mean, his other movie, Grave of the Firefly. Fireflies, it's one of the was darkest. That between so that and sad. between that and Watership Down, yeah, it's like, like Jesus Christ, <laughs> get these guys a hug. It's making these cartoons to try and get kids to kill themselves. Oh, Jesus, <laughs> yeah, I know. It's like. Uh, but I think this movie is definitely like one of the best films of the year. Definitely the best, in my opinion, the best animated film of the year. Um, I mean, I love the Lego movie too, but I think uh, this movie is just like, it's hard to ignore and uh, it's got a great message too. Yep. And it comes with an 86 minute documentary uh, and a, and a uh, second DVD here that, you know, basically a feature length documentary that deals with this film by the creator and the fact that it's his last is almost certainly his last film it's gonna be weird that both of the creators of studio ghibli are pretty much retiring so what are they gonna do now what (laughs) What i feel like they'll make something else (laughs) they 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 might they're both so old they may not have the opportunity that's true Uh, there's also a 40 minute thing that's sort of a, a a press panel announcement of the film being finished with everybody involved with it there's the original japanese trailers and tv spots uh, so it's a good little package. Now, I wish we had a copy of this to give away to you guys. Instead, what I've got here for you is something that I think you'll actually like you know, almost as much, which is, we talked about this a couple shows back, but it is a DVD of The Kingdom of Dreams and Madness, which is a documentary about Studio Ghibli. Uh, like, looking deep into especially Hayao Miyazaki and who he is and what a kook he is. <laughs> you know, he is a grumpy old man, is who <laughs> Miyazaki is, but still, I mean, he's like a collection of contradictions and is just a fascinating guy. It's a really great documentary. We really highly recommend it. Um, and we are giving away a copy. What you need to do is you need to get on your Twitter and first you have to like uh, connect with us at one of us net. And then what you're going to do is with the hashtag uh, kingdom giveaway, you're, you know what? I don't know why we usually ask a challenge of people what they have to do. Let's see. Oh yeah. If you could uh, make if you could have Hayao Miyazaki make a movie that was an adaptation of anything, what would it be? You say that, you know, like it could be like Hayao Miyazaki's Superman. Yeah. <laughs> uh, whoever gives us the, the best answer, the one we like the most, we will send this off to. Anyway, that is it for this week's show. Thank you so much, Sam, for coming here. Of course, us. man. I'm happy to do it. Yeah, it was fun. Uh, yeah, yeah, no doubt. Uh, we'll see uh, Sam again in, I want to say, three weeks. I can't remember. Even I don't know. Sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Uh, remember, once again, please click on those Amazon links and buy things through it. Can't tell you how much that helps us. And if you're not a subscriber yet, please consider being one. One of the other extras you're going to get is that we will be live casting the Oscars on this Sunday. So if, you know, now's the time. If you want to be there with us to see that, that's what you got to do. Anyway, thank you so much. And as I always say, no release is too big. No release is too small. From catastrophes to criterions, we review them all.